Hello, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to the 18th episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Isabella of Castile. Yay! At last. At last. <laughs> at last. After, after wade, wading through weeks and weeks of Perkin Warbeck, we're finally at Isabella. That's okay. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I've done the last five. People must be getting really fed up with me droning on and on and on. Oh, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Yep. Your turn now. Uh, we do want to mention that, surprise, surprise, we have our Patreon up and running. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> which we didn't actually know. <laughs> Someone managed to find it before it was published. <laughs> so thank you very much, David Whitley, for signing up as our first Patreon. Yeah, very first one. Yeah. So awesome. I'm going to read out what he said in his message to us. Hello, Michelle and Lucy. I am a great fan of all the Rexypod family and was delighted when you started up this podcast, looking deeply into one of my favorite periods in history. And goodness me, you do look deeply, which is fantastic. <laughs> I suspect that the four hours you gave us on Dudley and Empson are the four most enjoyable hours those gentlemen have ever been responsible for in their despicable lives. Oh, easily. <laughs> easily. <laughs> I also can't help but think that the ghost of Henry VIII will be absolutely furious when he realizes that season two will be about everyone in his life apart from him. Good. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to many more Tudoriferous lives to come. Thank you so much, David. That That's is lovely. unbelievably lovely. Mm. So wow. I guess we will introduce our Patreon to yep. everybody. We have it up and running. Yep, so what you'll get is extra episodes about people who are living at the same in the same period but not that don't have anything to do with England and also some special episodes as well thrown in. Yes. <laughs> Did we want to tell everybody about the tiers then? Yeah, we got four tiers. Mm -hmm. uh, for three dollars Canadian, you can be clergy. And that will include Patreon only Order of the Garter episodes. That's what we're calling our channel on Patreon. Mm -hmm. And your patron comment read out on a regular episode. And then for $5 Canadian, we have Merchants. That includes the two things that you got with Cleric, but also as a Patreon at this level, you get to vote on the next special episode produced. Uh, $15 Canadian is a Noble. Yes, so for the noble, you get everything that's already included, but you can request a person that the, that you would like on the episode. Uh, there is two caveats. That person must have lived in that season's time frame. So if we're doing Henry the Seventh, you can only do 1485 to 1509. They have to have lived within that time period. And you're going to be able to request one per season. It may be increased depending on time availability of Lucy and I, because it does take us quite a long time to research everybody. <laughs> and the and the top tier, uh, twenty dollars is a is the monarch. Yes. <laughs> so this gets everything it on all the other channels, but also gets access to the Tudoriferous Discord channel that's going to be for our patron Order of the Garter people only, which we are going to have Tudor treats on there, which is a topic of discussion where we'll give in some discussion items on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And then you can just chat with us if you want. Yep. And we'll be there all the time. 
all the time. <laughs> and actually, the time difference works quite well because it means that we will be all the time because mm -hmm. uh, I'll be asleep when you're on it and you'll be asleep when I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> and every so often we'll meet in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we have our Patreon open and you can find us just by searching Tudoriferous in Patreon. So, please, we'd love you to join us. That would be amazing. Mm. Yep. Otherwise, we're going to be researching all these things for nobody. Well, just for, da <laughs> just for David. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so originally, we hadn't intended to produce any episodes until March because we wanted to get everything up and running first. But we're upping our timeline. So our first episode will be a special episode for Isabella, and it's going to be released February 26th rather than us waiting on March. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, shall we start our episode on Isabella? No. Oh. I think... <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing now? I think you've forgotten something. I've forgotten a lot. Oh, I don't want to do the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's easy this time. Do the quiz. It's easy. Okay. easy. Okay. You said that before and I totally sucked at it. I'm not very good at this part. Well, this is definitely all about Perkin. Okay. Because um, sometimes I sort of rush because I suddenly remember <laughs> the last minute I should have done the quiz. But this time I thought about it in advance. So anyway, Will quiz. Atwater, the twice mayor of Cork, show up? <laughs> I noticed I kept calling him the twice. Uh, a couple of times I said York instead of Cork. I just clarify <laughs> it's definitely Cork. <laughs> Mind you, I noticed I called Polydor Virgil. Virgin at one point as well. When you're editing, uh, you can't go can't go back because there's two of us. Yeah, and it would just sound <laughs> odd. But anyway, that's what I meant to say. Quiz. Question one. Okay. How long was Perkins' proclamation? <laughs> 2,000 words long. <laughs> 2,000 words. <laughs> oh my gosh, I felt like an episode was being written. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, what was the name of the boat that took Perkin from Scotland to Ireland? The Cuckoo mm. or Cuckoo. Yeah, hey, I told you it was easy. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Number three, I don't sound dumb yet. <laughs> When the English fleet, fleet in inverted commas, I think there were four of them. Fleetette. <laughs> stopped the Spanish ship that was carrying Perkin. Where was he hiding? In a barrel. In a barrel. Yes, I don't know what happened to the wife and kids while he was hiding in the barrel, whether they had barrels of their own. Oh. If indeed there were any kids. Four. When Perkin was taken from Sanctuary in Bewley to see Henry... What was he wearing? Cloth of gold that we didn't mm. know where the heck he got it from. I was wondering whether it's one of these things where he's just on the horse heading up to Taunton to see Henry and thinking, should I have worn this? Have I done the right thing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you go out and you think, I've made a big mistake with these clothes. <gasps> yep. <laughs> I've overdone it. Yep, I've done that so many times. It's not even funny. <laughs> Usually the other way around. I go out and somebody needs help with something. So I end up doing some sort of construction in like work clothes. <laughs> yes. I'm like, oh, oh, there goes that shirt. <laughs> Number five. What instrument did Perkin play? Apparently musical instrument. Oh, my gosh. 
I don't know. In my head, I'm bringing up the lute, but I don't think so. Well, he played it badly, according to... Oh, the organ! The organ, yes. The organ, yes. (laughs) It sounded like a a sow in labor or something. I forgot what it was. The reason (laughs) I remember that is I think it's a Terry Pratchett quote. It sounded like a cat in heat caught in rusty ironworks. (laughs) <laughs> that was a Terry. I think that's a Terry Pratchett quote, but that's what popped in my head when I thought of somebody pay, playing that instrument badly. Yeah, well, five out of five. Yay! Yeah, you needn't have worried. I'm no longer stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and that was over five episodes as well. Uh, three, uh, three episodes. Three episodes. Well, four. If, if we go with the the special episode, we're going to be releasing pretty quick. Well, no, people yep. will have already heard that episode, the assassination. They will, and there was nothing from the question about it no okay now I've re- you're released Yay! you're released to talk about Isabella enough quizzing already let's get on with it Isabella okay yeah I'm looking forward to this because it seems to be ages since we weren't talking about Perkin yes yes when we added Isabella to the list of subjects for the season and Knowing that we would only cover their interactions with England, when you pulled her, I had assumed this would be much like the Pope Alexander episode, where England was little more than a paragraph in the story. Well, uh, yeah, I came across a few things after I'd done the episode that I could have put in. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. Every time you come across something, you're like, oh my gosh, why did I not find it on this book? It's it's about them. (laughs) Oh, well. Though it will be impossible not to discuss some of Isabella's story outside of her interactions with England, since we need it for context, with her, I was very pleasantly surprised at how much her story ties in with England. And I think you will be too. Mm -hmm. For the rest of her story, however, you will have to become a Patreon subscriber and join our Order of the Garter. Oh, nice little plug. <laughs> hmm To listen to Isabella's personal story in our first two Patreon episodes to be released late February and early March. It's fantastic. Absolutely loved reading and writing about her. Mm. So, yeah. Come with me, if you will. The air is hot and dry, so unlike the climate in England. You have come as a servant in the entourage of English diplomats, sent to the court of Isabella and Ferdinand to open up negotiations of Arthur's marriage to their youngest daughter, Katarina. It had been a few days, and though in awe of the Spanish court and the size of Isabella's jewels, including a ruby the size of a tennis ball, your master is getting impatient to see the infanta, Katarina. Is it possible she is deformed somehow? Why are they hiding her? Why are they not bringing the girl out? You've seen all the other children. Finally, at a joust, Infanta Donna Catarina arrives. She is perfect. She is a mini Isabella, small, pale, with her mother's red-gold hair and pristine complexion. She reminds you of English royalty, decked out in cloth of gold and covered in jewels just like her mother. Isabella picks her up to cuddle her as they watch the jousting. Surprised, you would not have thought to see such informal affection. Isabella speaks quietly to Katerina, smiling. Katerina is giggling and kisses her mother many times. You marvel at the strange arrangement you just heard. No, no, no. No. What did I just hear? It can't be true. 
What do you mean the princesses stay with their mother and go everywhere she goes? What, what do you mean she takes them with her when they go to battle? What? Don't the girls have a, a governess and a nurse? Of course, the stranger replies. But the queen will not part with them. You can see how much she loves our infanta. Mm -hmm. Isabella's first connection with England begins decades before she was born. Her parental grandmother was Catherine of Lancaster, granddaughter of Edward III of England and daughter of John of Gaunt. Oh, God, John of Gaunt pops in all the time, doesn't he? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Isabella would have heard tales as a child of Queen Catherine acting as regent for Isabella's father, King Juan II, when he was a child. These stories may have been the first inkling in her young mind that a woman could rule. Isabella and her young brother Alfonso were the result of her father's second marriage. Her father passed away not long after her younger brother was born. Her much older half-brother, Enrique, became king and did not like his half-siblings. She was sent with her mother and half-brother to live elsewhere in poverty. Isabella's mother was not mentally healthy after the death of her husband. Isabella's maternal grandmother, who was Portuguese, came to stay and raise the children. It gives you the idea that grief, depression, might be something that followed through to I woman. was just thinking about that, yes. It did seem a, a, a very similar situation, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Amongst the many marriages proposed for little Isabella, there were actually two with England. When Isabella was almost 13 in 1464, she was betrothed to King Edward IV. All right. I know. That made me go, what? Even though she's the, she's the poverty-stricken, unloved half-sister. She was still a princess. Yeah. And I had no idea that this happened because we heard about Warwick arranging a marriage with the French princess. Mm. I didn't realize that there was already a formal betrothal with Isabella in Spain. So when does, where does this fit into, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, Elizabeth Woodville. I need this woodpile there because I like the book. Mm -hmm. Well, Enrique was hoping that this marriage would not only cement a political alliance with England, but would also remove Isabella from the succession by removing her from the country. If she wasn't in the country, she could not gain the throne. And in Castile, it is one of the few European countries where a woman could inherit the throne. Mm. Very different. Edward and Isabella were also distant cousins. Edward also had a distant claim to the Castilian crown. He was descendant of King Pedro of Castile through a daughter. Mm. When we talk about how everything is connected, yeah. they all intermarry. <laughs> But he never pushed for that, though, did he? Like, he pushed for the French throne, presumably. No, he yeah. did not. It was way too mm. far down the line for him to, I think, make that claim when Enrique was the undisputed mm. king. There, there wasn't that how it got sent from one family to another like it did in mm. France. Yeah. Remember, a cousin got it. This is, this is a descendant through the eldest son going all the way down in Castile. This possible alliance between Castile and England was hugely popular. 
because it did then mean that they would have a claim to the Castilian throne because Isabella could be an heir. She was the third in line for the throne. Popular in England, you mean? Popular in England, yes. Popular in Castile or not? Yes, actually, because of the view of how powerful England was becoming. Uh, From what I could tell, around this time, even though it was quite disruptive, they were still, England was still considered quite a powerhouse when it came to military matters, Mm. because they did win a lot of battles. So if they could get them on their side, then they'd have an even better army. It was the English archers that were what everybody was trying to get to. Mm. I mean, it was the ultimate long-range weapon at that period of time. So Isabella did have a younger brother and an older half-brother, but with all the wars in Castile, there's always a possibility that Isabella would be the one to survive if she was in England. So England took the view that she would be safer here, and if her two brothers pass on, then she gets the crown. Enrique did, her older brother, did have one daughter, but the rumor was it wasn't, she wasn't his. (laughs) That the queen was a bit friendly, shall we say, with the courtiers, and that she was not his own daughter. Would that matter? I mean, if the king said, she's definitely mine, I mean... would you, would you shouldn't be listening to rumor? Um. You would think, but it was bad enough that the court themselves gave his daughter again another Juana, uh, the last name of one of the courtiers rather than Enrique's last name. All right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. She did not have any support. Essentially, nobody felt that she was the daughter of King Enrique. Unfortunately, as we know, Edward had secretly married Elizabeth Woodville by this time. He messed up on so many different, different <laughs> so many things, levels. didn't he? <laughs> At least he was happy, or they were happy. We hope. I think so. It comes across as a happy marriage, but sometimes I wonder, like, do you just feign it because it was your mistake? Well, yeah, it's a bit like <laughs> Edward VIII and... Um, Wallace Simpson. They they had to be, they yes. had to stay happy after what it given yeah. up. Yeah. Isabella obviously resented this rejection for a very long time. And we know this because twenty years later, when talking to the English ambassadors, she quipped that she had been rejected for a quote, a mere widow of England. End quote. Twenty years is a long time to hold a grudge. <laughs> They really did. After a few more possible marriages were considered, Enrique again turned to England for a possible match. This time, the choice was a young boy named Richard, the younger brother of the English King of England, future Richard III. All right, she's she's going through the lot. Well, I say she's going through the lot. She's she's jumped over George very sensibly. (laughs) I suppose he was probably married already by this point. He was probably married already. Yes. (laughs) Though this one wasn't considered for long, I wish I could say why, but I couldn't find any reasoning behind dropping this idea. We do know that Isabella was adamantly opposed to the match. All right, so she wanted Edward, but she didn't want Richard. Is that because Edward's the king and Richard? Yes, and Richard had pretty much no possibility of gaining the throne. No, why should he? I mean, there was two other lads ahead of him. Yeah, 
Well, there weren't two other lads ahead of him, but you still had George was alive, so he would have come before them. And Edward did have a bunch of daughters. And in Castile, they would have considered that those daughters would have been mm. legitimate heirs to the throne. So she did not like the idea of marrying Richard. She would leave Castile, which means she lost access to gain the throne if anything did happen to her brothers. Mm -hmm. And it was unadvantageous. She actually went down in rank yeah. if she married him. She would no longer be a princess. Yeah, well, little did she know. Mm-hmm. Top that off with her already having her heart set on Ferdinand of Aragon, who, interesting, was the very first person she was considered for when she was an infant, mm. when her father was alive. Isabella learned at the time of her marriage the importance of papal dispensation. So we're skipping a bunch of years here. This is something that would haunt her daughter Catherine in England in the future. After Isabella and Ferdinand were married, they learned that Ferdinand's father had a dispensation forged when it wasn't readily provided by the Pope. Uh, now, I think there was a fair amount of that, wasn't there? Not necessarily right up in the, uh, in the royalties, but... Yeah. Unfortunately, Isabella and Ferdinand were second cousins, so the marriage without a papal dispensation was incestuous. This meant that Isabella and Ferdinand weren't married, and that their daughter was illegitimate. Whoops. Yeah, she could not inherit the throne as an illegitimate girl. Isabella would spend a great deal of time and effort to ensure dispensations were properly written for her children's marriages later, no matter what the circumstances. Mm. Dispensations were almost always needed for royal marriages. They were. And they were always intermarrying. Well, they were so closely related. Well, I say closely. We discovered that actually you don't have to be that closely related to need papal dispensation. Didn't you? And there was very few people yeah. left in the gene pool to, to pick on, weren't there? Yes. And which, which, which pope so. are we talking about? Innocent? Or? Uh, I don't remember. Okay, we'll cut that bit out then. <laughs> Yeah, I will leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> After Enrique died, Isabella took the throne of Castile. Mm. Everybody goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> Her younger brother had died during a civil war between Enrique and Alfonso. Enrique was probably one of the worst kings Castile had ever had. So the nobles had rebelled with Alfonso at their lead. So when Alfonso passed away, the only two heirs left were Enrique's possible daughter, Juana, and Isabella. Isabella decided she wasn't going to wait for that and just took the throne in a coup. She's quite feisty, isn't she? Very. <laughs> and her taking the throne is, in all honesty, the act that made Catherine such a prize for England. So we think of Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. That's because Spain is not Spain. It is not a unified country. It didn't exist. There were five countries in the Iberian Peninsula, and we'll go into more of that in Isabella's episode. But Castile and Aragon were the two largest, but they were not unified in any way. And they were still politically and economically and militarily completely separate entities and in some ways Isabella worked to keep it that way so she would keep control of Castile. Mm. So Castile was the largest portion of the Iberian Peninsula 
was the source of greater wealth than the rest of Spain. And this is where I got into more fascinating clothing stuff. It was so cool. So we think of England as being wealthy because of their wool trade. Yeah. And you think that the way we were talking about it, they were the only producers of wool. They were not. Merino sheep were kept only in Castile. The rulers were smart enough to not let anybody else come and get some of their sheep and take it to their country to steal that trade. Merino wool was the softest wool available, which made the wool incredibly valuable. So the way it works is you've got the fibrous thickness and strength. And if you're looking at hair under a microscope, it has little spiky bits because it's scaly. Mm-hmm. So merino wool has longer filaments. So the strand itself is longer and the scales on that strand are longer, making it smoother and softer. All right. Okay. I'm sorry. I went down a total rabbit hole <laughs> on how to compare with sheep wool and it was really, really fascinating. English wool could be quite scratchy. And though it was, it was also the most durable and the quality of it for its ability to survive many, many generations, was well beyond any other sheep in Europe. The nobility, however, always preferred the softness of merino wool, even though it would not last as long. It tended to break easier. They don't need to worry about that. They, don't, they can just buy more. Yeah. Yes. So if you want the softest wool, you have to purchase it from Castile. So it became something that the nobility wanted because it was expensive, because you could only get it in one place. Castile ended up having their entire economy run with this as their forefront for income. This wool and the fact that later in the age of Isabella, Castile was exclusive in their exploration and exploitation of the New World. We keep thinking because we're told that Spain and Portugal were the two explorers it wasn't mm. it was portugal and castile when isabella started the exploration it wasn't ferdinand she ensured that she and castile were the bankroll of the exploration and colonization and in all of the contracts she ensured to expressly exclude aragon from the valuable incomes is that because I mean, she fought to get that throne, and she was, she was damned if she was going to share it to dilute the throne, so, so to speak, by adding Aragon to it. When people listen to the Patreon episode, we will find out that Ferdinand was not a good ruler, and I think she was just trying to protect her people's interests. All right. Yeah, I was, they did seem to be entirely separate people whenever I've come across them. It's yeah. although we, we remember them in history as Ferdinand and Isabella. And that was Ferdinand's doing. Yeah, well when you delve into them a bit more we didn't yeah. Ferd, they seem to be doing entirely separate things. Completely separate things. Quite <laughs> often they weren't even anywhere near each other. Hmm. <laughs> They'd go in opposite directions. <laughs> With this economic the fact that Castile was bigger, so it has a much bigger population, which means it also has a bigger military, so it's more powerful. When Isabella dies in the future, Catherine lost more than half her influence in the world. So we can tie in everything Isabella is doing to what happened with Catherine after she passed away with not being married, not getting her dowry paid, 
it is entirely due to Isabella herself. Right. Mind you, we know now that not having a dowry paid is, is sort of Common. pretty much how you expect it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, one parallel for the English court was how Isabella and Ferdinand were choosing their court appointments. And some of it made me think that Henry was taking his um, ideas from their court. Hmm. Like Henry, they backed away from giving appointments based on people's position at birth and moved to more of a meritocracy. And they seem to be the first court to do so. All right. Yeah, because that's definitely a Henry thing, isn't it? Yes, it, it was. That was one of the things that somebody... Oh, man. When you read so many books, you start losing where you read it. Yes. But True. Uh, when they talk from moving from the Middle Ages to the New Age, one of that, one of the qualifiers of that was that they moved away from positions of birth, that meritocracy started taking over. And that changed the way the economy was running. And but, if they pointed that out for Henry's court, Isabella and Ferdinand had done it first. Henry sort of didn't really have a choice, did, did he? Because he didn't have the connection with the nobility. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, perhaps looking across the, the sea at what they were doing, he probably thought, oh, right, there's, there's my way out. Yes, and it was successful. Hmm. The appointees that they chose actually had to be good at their jobs in order to be chosen. So they had to prove to be competent prior to be getting the position. And then they also, through Isabella, had to prove that they were continuing to be competent in order to maintain their positions. It seems Isabella would audit them. Hmm. And if you weren't doing your position well, she kicked you out. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Like, there is no longer anywhere in Castile, and she had the same effect on Aragon, that a Spanish noble would have a position because his father had the position, his grandfather had the position. That was out. She got rid of it entirely. Was there a, um, oh, what word, um, a, a backlash against that from the nobles? Yes and no. Things were so out of control in Castile because Enrique was such a bad king that basically all you have is a whole bunch of feudal fiefdoms that were fighting. Right. So they were so, fighting amongst themselves, so she was able to, to get do on whatever with she wanted. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So in a way, that seemed to have worked for her because now she had a court that would actually function. Mm. Whereas before, you kind of hoped for the best. Right. <laughs> It didn't seem, prior to her, it seemed like it was just complete and utter chaos for generations prior. Yes, it sort of functioned, but in as soon as one weak ruler, I'm not sure if he was weak or he just had allowed everybody else to get too much power before he started trying to take control, that it just turned into chaos. Well, and complete and utter chaos. Yeah. Oh. Because the Spanish nobles no longer could gain a position because their father had before them, they were able to make the throne itself more efficient and worked better, which actually increased their influence in the world because now they could respond faster and quicker to military threats, to problems in the church. Everything just seemed to flow faster. So it's one of the reasons why Spain started becoming more and more powerful is because they were one of the first to move away from this and actually have people who were competent at their jobs. Mm. So I'm pretty sure since Henry came in later, 
that yes, he did look at what they were doing and started pulling people who actually could do their position. Which which turned out to be unfortunate in the end, really, didn't it? Because um, Dudley yeah. and Epsom were very good at their jobs. They were. <laughs> Unfortunately, they decided to morph their jobs into something vicious. Well, I don't know. Did they or did Henry? Oh, yes. On Twitter, we've got a follower. Her name is Elizabeth of Warwick on Twitter. Hmm. And I did ask her if she wanted to come speak to us about Henry because she would like us to stop saying he was a victim. Right. Um, <laughs> well, we've always said we don't know. That's We do not know. We do not know. We just know that the two of those men, Empson and Dudley, were thugs in every sense of the mm. word. So I wish we had a bit more, maybe a diary from Henry to be able to say yes or no. Yeah, well, that's why we were going to do an episode right at the end on what we've decided about him. Yeah. When we've picked up lots of other other views including yes. including our twitter friends. yes so elizabeth warwick we will try not to call him a victim anymore because she is right we are we are leaning more towards him being a victim because of those two episodes but perhaps over the end by the end of us doing this season we'll have a more balanced view of him yes i mean i saw in the perkin episodes you could see the stalinist bit creeping in with yeah. with his extension of the treason um you know what you could be done for treason for and they just got bigger and bigger yeah and kicking out the flemish yeah and then possibly the irish but we weren't sure he certainly certainly yeah. had had a little list so yes no i don't think he's a vict victim no, I We'll find, out. we'll find <laughs> we'll out. We'll find out by the end. <laughs> we're, finding, we're finding out gradually, which is nice. I like this, this way of approaching it. Yes, me too. Uh, back to Spain. Ferdinand was away for a great deal of time while his father was alive. His father recalled him to help fight the French. Aragon's northern border is right up against France. Mm. So they were constantly fighting back and forth. But when Isabella needed him and called him for aid he would refuse to come. Nice. And in one situation, when the two of them were together and in real danger, Ferdinand fled, leaving Isabella behind. I'm looking forward to the Ferdinand episode. <laughs> <laughs> you sound awful. I admit I am now biased <laughs> against him. <laughs> he did not provide any support whatsoever. While his father was alive. Is that because he was frightened of his father? He he was doing as he was told from what his father said. At first I thought so, but then I thought of how he treats Catherine later. And he treats her the exact same way he treated her mother. No monetary aid, no political support, just abandons her entirely. And he does this to Isabella. And he is in a position to help, is he? He's not... Uh... yes. He is the king, independent king of Sicily. Yeah. So he has income from another kingdom, which, of course, I also didn't know. I've always heard Ferdinand of Aragon. I've never heard Ferdinand of Aragon in Sicily. Yeah. Now, that did pop up in the um, Pope Alexander that, yes, that uh, Charles VIII of France got out of Naples because he suddenly realized that he was in a tricky tricky situation. He was stuck down there and Ferdinand was about to take over Sicily and all the other towns around them were going turning against him. So I think and 
and they were yeah. all dropping dead with syphilis. So yeah, he thought well, we'll go home though, now. Is, you mentioned yeah. What's funny is that you mentioned that, and it didn't even click in my brain at the yeah, time. Yeah, well, it just seemed. I was thinking it was a completely separate. Yeah, what's Ferdinand? it got to do with him? Yes, <laughs> it's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but all these places are linked, even if they're not geogra- geographically linked. Very much they're so. Link- linked by yeah. ancient fam- familial. Thanks. Yes, well, his cousins were the kings of Naples. Mm. So, yeah, very mm. interesting. We need to make some sort of a map, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Isabella. I did find a, a humorous note for her when she was younger. She was present in 1477 when an English ambassador visited Castile. So a, ca- a scaffold had been erected for the envoy to speak on so everybody could hear him. And it collapsed under Ooh. the envoy as he was speaking. The name of the gentleman was Thomas Langton. And Isabella, who was present, watched Thomas pick himself up off the ground and continue speaking as if nothing had happened. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I would have been impressed if you could fall. There's some debate on whether it was a six-foot-tall scaffold or an 11-foot-tall scaffold. Either way, that's quite a drop to then stand up and continue on with no pause. And he was the English ambassador, was he? (laughs) He was the English ambassador to Spain. Certainly that's what they were taught to do later on, I think, in Victorian (laughs) times. Just pretend it never happened. It never happened. Just keep on going, keep on going. (laughs) In 1486, I found records that surprised me, actually. It brought England back into the story, this time in Spain itself. So I found information of a Lord Scales from England that had oh, traveled. across him. Yeah. Oh. I, I started remembering little snippets of him in various books. He had traveled to Spain to help Castile and Aragon fight the Muslims in Granada. Granada was the southern emirate, uh, Muslim Mm. emirate in the Spanish, well, in the Iberian Peninsula. The Europeans called these Muslims Moors. So that's the first time I found out where the term Moor came from and what it was referring to. Yeah, that's why in this country we have Moorish dancing, and that comes from the Moors because it was uh, Moorish dancing originally. Really? Hmm. Well, that's neat. I didn't know that. Yeah, until recently, they uh, some of them some of them blacked up for it, but I don't think they do no. that anymore. Yeah, no. <laughs> but um, mm. yes, it was Moorish dancing, and I mentioned that only because I learnt that just today. <laughs> oh, that's so cool! So yeah, did they think it? Were they actually doing a Moorish dance, or were was it a mocking dance of what they thought the Moors were doing? I wonder. I don't know. There's a lot of it. Still goes on. Um, it's you know it's meant it's meant to be sort of country country dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, most most of your your average Morris dancer is probably a solicitor or a doctor or something. I did now. read it's originally not... that Morris dancing was done at court, and then moved down oh. the social status. Mm. And there's a lot of hitting hitting sticks and waving hankies and. Don't they wear bells or something? Yeah. 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 I mean, they're mocked quite a lot these days, but I I like I like a good Morris dance. <laughs> I love country dancing. I think it's adorable. Hmm. And it's just interesting when you find out that there's meanings behind each dance. Oh, yes. They've all got very specific names. Mm-hmm. And apparently there are stories behind it. Hmm. 
Oh, well, I can feel another... Yeah, I know. Hmm. Another extra episode coming hmm. on. I was sort of thinking, in, in the um, background episode, we reckon this would take seven years. <laughs> We're looking at I've 40. I've got a feeling Henry the, Henry the Seventh is going to take seven years. We keep adding to it. But yeah, that would be a fantastic thing to research. <laughs> I'm sure somebody has researched the origins because that's where I've... I, hmm? I don't know where I saw that. That was on a documentary that I watched that they were saying that it started at court and then moved its way down. So originally you would never have seen a villager dancing it ever. Mm. And when the villagers did started dancing it, that was it. It was taboo for noblemen because yeah. you can't do the same thing. No, certainly not. Mm-hmm. But Lord Scales, and oh, yes, you might him. recognize mm-hmm. some of these names, was the son of Jaquetta of Luxembourg. The witch. No. Oh, you're pulling in from Philippa Gregory. <laughs> no, I've never read Philippa Gregory, but I thought Jaquetta was accused of witchcraft. No. Well, sort of. It was <laughs> it was tongue-in-cheek, I believe. Oh. Um, in Philippa Gregory's story, The White Queen, she really turned Jaquetta into an actual witch. But Jaquetta of Luxembourg was married to Richard Woodville. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lord Scales was the younger brother of Elizabeth Woodville, Edward the ah. Fourth's wife, and the mm-hmm. uncle of Henry the Seventh's wife, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. He had apparently made a vow to fight the infidels and traveled to Spain to actually keep that vow. He was even hit in the face with a large rock thrown down the walls at Loja by a defender. Yes. The rock took out his front teeth and apparently disfigured him. Uh, Isabella and Ferdinand visited him in the hospital that Isabella had set up for the soldiers. Again, Isabella is on the battlefield. And it's Isabella who set it up for the soldiers, not Ferdinand. Not Ferdinand, no. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a fairly low opinion of him already, and we've not really touched on him yet. Yeah, I didn't want this to sound so biased, but unfortunately I, I'm realizing that I really did make it sound... <laughs> I was trying to imply how much she did, but at the same time it's implying how much Ferdinand did not do. Hmm. Mm. The records are. A I little... think I seem to. Sorry, I seem to remember mentioning. I can't remember if it's honor or affair. That I thought that Isabella and Ferdinand were like the grown-ups of Europe, because there's a lot of you've got Maximilian and um, Charles, and they all seem to be running about doing daft things. And then Isabella and Ferdinand pop up and say, you know, stop that now. And they they tend to be listened to because I remember her um, her being so shocked that Maximilian was carrying on with the invasion of England and she'd told him not to do it. Yeah, quite obvious that she she expected to be obeyed. Yes, but now I'm beginning to think. Did you see mm, Ferdinand just, mentioned in that? Perhaps it's just Isabella. <laughs> yeah, you don't often find him mentioned in any of those diplomatic dispatches. Right. Mm. I think I was just putting the. Putting the two names together. Yeah, I put the two names together because that's how we know them through. That's yeah. how we know them. That's how we know them. We'll go into a lot more detail about this on her mm-hmm. episode. And I hope people do join us on Patreon because I found it unbelievably fascinating. Mm. There are many that say she was the first and only true queen in the world. And 
I think she lives up to that. The first and only. Yeah. (laughs) For the way she wielded her power. Mm. Again, that's going to be a discussion on Patreon. Right. Oh, gosh, we're really plugging this Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited. I am so excited. I've already got my notes written out for us discussing her, and I'm just like, ooh, let's do this. (laughs) But yeah. Okay. The rock that we talked about took out his front teeth and disfigured him. Um, It is a little confusing from what I found, but it appears that he not only aided the Spanish, and I do say the Spanish because Aragon and Castile were taking this on together, Mm-hmm. Um, to fight the Moors himself. But according to Andre Bernaldez, the chaplain of the Archbishop Shrip, Archbishop Shrip, Ship? Archbishop Rick. Archbishop yes, Rick. Archbishop, Archbishop Rick. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, it's like Bishop Fox all over again. <laughs> Archbishop Rick of Seville. Yep. Uh, he brought with him 300 soldiers and English archers with him in his train. The train, though not listed, it's not itemized, implies that he would have brought his own supplies and many servants with him and his men to battle. So he didn't just come by himself. He brought his own army with him. And they specifically mentioned that he brought the much needed English archers. Right. So, yeah, I mean, they weren't pacifist, these uh, these bishops, were they? No. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, that, um, Andre Bernaldez was a chaplain, and he was just uh, writing a history and an account of it. He was apparently mm-hmm. at the battle helping in the hospital. The rest of the records indicate that Lord Scales' men fought bravely and really impressed Isabella and Ferdinand. I don't know if that would have been a help in diplomatic negotiations between Spain and England, but if the uncle of the current Queen of England showed up at my war without me having to pay him far away from his homeland and became disfigured through his bravery and possibly have turned the tide, I would have been impressed. Mm. That would have made me say, you know what? I think we will marry into that family. Yeah. Can't help. Can't hurt. No. We also have confirmation that some Irish that were loyal to Henry VII also fought at Loja in the state papers. Henry VII sent a missive to Ferdinand, quote, passport and recommendation in favor of Ubertus Stan... Ubertus? I don't know how to do that with some sort of Irish accent or not Irish accent. Ubertus is the name. Ubertus Stanton, also written Staunton later. An Irishman who has distinguished himself by his valor against the Moors in the town of Loja and on former occasion in Tangiers. So that was sent to Ferdinand at Cordova on the 8th of March in 1487. So Henry knew who was fighting there. Hmm. And I didn't think that he would have cared. Like, really, it happened... So far away, wasn't his choice, wasn't his decision, but he still had a record of who fought there. I just yeah, records and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, given the number of spies he had, yes. I think he knew, he knew everything that was going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that, I must say that that's as close to a quote as I can get since the original was in Latin. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's what it said. If you ever have time to kill, 
and you want an interesting, if not exciting read, go to the British History Online and search for the calendar of state papers for Spain. You mm. tipped me off that these existed, and it was really fascinating. You can watch the jousting unfold in their negotiations over the wedding, including drafts regarding concluding the treaty for Arthur and Catherine's marriage, the appointment of de Puebla, and little side yeah. notes making provision for exigencies, like if Arthur died, what would Catherine be given, which never happened. No, no, she, definitely not. And I absolutely loved finding a quote from the Spanish ambassadors and what they said to King Henry, quote, Bearing in mind what happens every day to the kings of England, it is surprising that Ferdinand and Isabella should dare give their daughter to you at all. End quote. Really? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he didn't just punch them in the face. <laughs> I guess not, but that was put in the papers. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was cool, but at the same time, the haggling over money for this marriage felt really dirty. Mm. Felt kind of like a meat market. Yes. Ugh. Nasty. Yep. Nasty. There were also messages back and forth with Henry asking Ferdinand and Isabella to intercede with the King of the Romans, which I think we can conclude is Maximilian. I should imagine it is. He was the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, he's the King of the Romans. In regards to a treaty, and while it isn't outright said in those letters and dispatches, Henry implies the evil source of contention. And since this dispatch was right around the time that Perkin was in with Maximilian, I'm assuming yep. that is him. I th Yes, it must be. And um, I mean, Henry must have been furious with Maximilian, mustn't he? <laughs> really? <laughs> Absolutely. But I love that he called him the evil source of contention. <laughs> mm. this is he must have felt completely beset. I mean, everybody around him just seemed to be... Yeah. Against him. The only people who weren't seemed to be Isabella and Ferdinand. Everybody else mm. was willing to take him on as, yes, this is him. Isabella, after receiving a letter from Perkin requesting support, wrote to Henry, stating that she was not giving the report, but, and I love this, quote, As for the affair of him who calls himself the Duke, we hold it for a jest, end quote. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, she could, yes, she did say it was, he was a joke. Yep. <laughs> That's Perkin we're talking about here. That is Perkin. Yeah. Yeah, she firmly held the view that Perkin was a fake. She did not believe him to be related to them at all. But at the end, well, towards the end, she, after the bidding war, mm -hmm. um, and they were trying to lure him over to Spain, I, I think they were prepared to call him Duke, weren't they, even if they didn't believe it? Mm, I will mm. get to that. Okay. I yep. did keep the sort of linear. I tried. I was trying to make it coherent, but there was so much mm. to cover. As Isabella and Ferdinand's marriage continued, they had more children. So their first daughter was born, and then it was six or eight years before their next one was born, because Ferdinand was never in Castile. Right. Isabella insisted that all of their children every single one of them, be male or female, be educated. She also included all of the children at court in lessons, both boys and girls. Excellent. <laughs> Many historians and contemporaries believe that Isabella's requirements for her daughters and the girls at court to be educated in Latin, French, math, 
philosophy, and many others, revolutionized education for all women in Europe. Because it's not much later that we then see the next generation, her daughter Catherine, Anne Boleyn, Margaret of Austria, and later Elizabeth I of England, being highly educated in Very all educated. those fields. Mm. Yeah. They, they had to learn just as much as the boys. In fact, I found a few records in dispatches that Catherine was noted in England as a better and more accomplished scholar than her husband, Henry VIII. You don't, you don't necessarily think of him as being that bright, do you? No, but he was you? said to be intelligent. Hmm. Anyway, we'll come across, we'll, we'll decide on him after, yeah. we've, Season after two. we've sucked the guts out of Henry the Seventh. <laughs> do the same in the next one. <laughs> oh my gosh. The royal daughters and their companions learned academically, just like the boys. But to this, Isabel added sewing, baking, weaving, and embroidery. My view of education for noble women had never included baking before. No. No, I had thought baking would be considered a servant's job, so mm, yeah, I was definitely. more than a little surprised with that. But then I, of course, went down another rabbit hole <laughs> and found out the reason the noble women were taught baking is because of sugar. Sugar was right. unbelievably expensive. So you, oh, could... so you didn't want to let yes. a lower servant get her dirty mitts on your sugar exactly so right. the baking they oh. are talking about is confectionery baking anything that required sugar there are a couple of different ways that it's done either the noble woman did the baking of the dessert or they would go down to a locked cabinet where the spices and the sugar were they would weigh out the sugar and then give just that sugar to the person who was doing the baking and close and lock the door and then supervise them using it to make sure they didn't take any to sell mm. Mm. Yeah, an interesting little side note to the internal working of a noble house. Like, I was like, why on earth would they be baking? Uh, mm, just don't trust the servants. Exactly. All right. Isabella also encouraged the girls to be warriors for Christianity. This is new. And not to ever back down in the face of opposite not to ever back down in the face of opposition to what they knew was their Christian duty. And we can see mm -hmm. that this lesson stuck with Catherine since she was willing to defy cardinals to defend that her marriage was right in the eyes of God. Mm. This is similar to how Isabella would stand up against a little-known Pope Alexander. Never you know, heard of him. The Forgia. <laughs> <laughs> when she stood up to him for his corruption later. Isabella's yeah, but he might not have been corrupt. We discovered we discovered that it's all Julius's it's fault. All Julius's fault. Yes. He was, he was not the man was a saint. All. The man was a saint. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that I'm not sure that there was ever any um doubt. Content contention about him being corrupt. It's no. just whether he was actually killing people or not. <laughs> Which actually I never came across that specifically. That's a mm. good point. I had to go quite far and wide for some of my sources for her for the Patreon episode, and some of it does mention, well, a lot of it does mention uh, Rodrigo Borgia. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I don't remember a single incident where he was accused of murder. Not one. No. I think that came later with Julius. Yeah. Oh. Isabella's court, where Catherine was raised, could be seen as a template for Catherine and Henry's court as well. Like them, Isabella brought in artists, known philosophers and scholars, and architects to be part of their court entourage and ensured that they were highly patronized by all of her nobles at court, so they had a good living, so they would not leave. I presume that's the influence of Italy as well at this time. Yes, the Renaissance, the Renaissance was starting. Oh. Yes. The first... This is so cool. The first mm -hmm. novels ever written are written at her court. What, Cervantes? I don't know. Or was that well, earlier than that? Don Quixote? I don't that? remember. I didn't actually find what they were. <laughs> but I do mean her court. Ferdinand seems absent from the accounts from the court set up at this particular time period when the novels were written. I Isabella had her own court. Ferdinand had his own court in Aragon. Mm. I think it's hilarious. Just in case listeners don't know, Lucy and I can see each other because we record over Google Meets. We, mm -hmm. We've each got our own recording devices going and then we share them over online. But I make waving motions and geographical. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I am very, very handsy with my descriptions. <laughs> so when I'm thinking I'm making sense, yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not even sure that Spain is over there in the way you're pointing. <laughs> No, it's over there. <laughs> exactly the opposite direction. <laughs> okay. Uh, Isabella was a very affectionate mother, like we mentioned in the Come With Me. Mm, that's nice. Yeah. She kept her children close to her. She was often, often seen at events cuddling her young children in her lap and swapping them out so they don't get jealous, which I just thought was so sweet. How many children did they have altogether? Um, but not so many that they could offer any to the uh, to James the Fourth. So. No, they had five children in total. Isabel was their first, then Juan, then Juana, then Maria, then Catherine. So they had five children, but there was quite mm. a space. It's either six or eight years between Isabel and Juan. There was a tradition in Spain to always name children after their parents or their grandparents. Mm. So they reuse names. Juan is the son. Juana is the, is the daughter. But yeah, she was, she was often cuddling her children and talking happily with them. And that made me think about how Catherine might have felt when she went to England and was told she had to give up her children to be raised by others and they wouldn't even be in the same building. Mm. And she and her siblings were with her mother so often that they were even being raised in camps close to battle lines. Like, that just... Must have seemed very cold coming to this, that court. I mean, temperature and emotionally. Yeah, because now you don't have your kids. Hmm. They get sent down to Ludlow and places like that. Yes, and especially when so many of her children died and she wasn't able to spend their life with them. Like, that must have mm. just been heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how she could have agreed to that. 
I know that was the custom in England, and the queens were expected to take on the customs of the country that they moved to. But, ugh, don't oh, like that. She had a hell of a life, really, didn't she? Yeah. Oh, I feel so sorry for her. Isabella, loving her children as she did, surprise, surprise, took the lead and in some cases was the only one involved in the marriage negotiations. Yep, that's figures. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's also possible that it was she who decided which countries and leaders would get the daughters. I not only didn't find many records showing Ferdinand was that involved in these negotiations, but in one particular case, he was completely unaware of one of the negotiations and then was completely opposed to it, which Isabella completely ignored. Mm. Well, cert- <laughs> certainly it was when the um, when James the Fourth of Scotland was being offered this non-existent daughter of Isabella, it was Isabella doing the it was negotiations. I didn't don't remember any mention of Ferdinand. No, and the one he was against was when she was trying to settle the country right at the beginning. She offered their eldest Isabel to the son of Louis. She was going to give him to a French, give her to a French ruler, mm. which Ferdinand was actively at war with and did not want the war to stop. So that's mm. the one where he was very opposed <laughs> to the wedding, and she just kept on going. <laughs> She sounds great. I she? loved her. <laughs> <laughs> I am so unbelievably biased. I don't know if it's because she was so amazing for the time or mm. if I'm getting to her after doing Epson and Dudley. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isabella and Ferdinand wanted to use their daughters to form alliances that would surround the French. Right? France was the worst enemies they had after they had finally expelled the Muslims from the peninsula. The Habsburgs and the English were the preferred matches. The Habsburgs, because of their wealth and power in Europe, and England, perhaps because of Isabella's descent from the English kings. It also, as you mentioned, the Habsburgs, specifically Philip, was chosen for Juana because she was trying to get the Perkin issue taken care of. Yes. And this wasn't only due to the French problem. It was because the Ottoman Turks were invading Italy. Yes, well, that's why she was trying to get everyone together for the Holy League, wasn't it? Yes. She was. She seemed to be the lone voice. Yeah, she no, was. Nobody else seemed to be taking any notice because Charles VIII was coming in anyway, wasn't he? And so they were concentrating on that issue. Which but was at the same time. Yeah, that was an amazing surprise to me. I I know you looked at the Charles going into Italy. What I didn't realize was the reason he had such an easy time getting into Italy was because he claimed that he was coming to the defense against the Ottomans. And then once he got in, he just started taking over everywhere. No, I didn't spot that bit. They Ooh. let him come in. <laughs> like, yeah, I yes, think he's going to be an help. interesting one. <laughs> well, I know Ludovic of Milan did that one, didn't he? And uh, and then almost immediately thought, oh, God, yep. what have oh, I done? Crap. <laughs> this is not yes. going well. This is not going well. <laughs> <laughs> Go home. <laughs> yeah, so Charles just got to waltz right in. There was absolutely no resistance. And by the time they realized that there was a problem, it was too late. He was already firmly ensconced. And I think by the time, yeah, by the time he got to Rome, I think Cesare had already whispered in his dad's ear. And dad just said, eh, eh. fair enough. Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. 
The marriage between Catherine and Arthur was broached when Arthur was a baby and Catherine was two. They were about a year and a bit apart. Catherine was chosen for Arthur for two reasons. She was the youngest and she was the least valuable for her distance from the Castilian throne, which could go to a female. So she was in line for the throne. It's also, on a side note, because she was closest in age to Arthur, Isabella really worked to make sure that there was not an age disparity in her children's marriages. She wanted to ensure that they were happy. What was the age disparity? I can't say it. What was the age age difference between uh, Isabella and Ferdinand? They were the same age. Right. So it wasn't as if she found herself married to an old man and thought, I'm not, I don't want my kids to go through this. No, but every other person that she was proposed to was like 30 when she was eight. And she was adamantly opposed to that on her own. So she didn't attempt to do that with any of her daughters. Well, she did with one, but again, Patreon episode. (laughs) There's so much I want people to hear. England was small and not very influential yet because of the changeover and the War of the Roses. It had lost a lot of its prestige in Europe, but it still needed to be encouraged through this marriage not to take sides with the French and to join the Holy League. She was really into actually having this marriage happen. While their eldest, Isabel, was married to the King of Portugal, Maria, their fourth child, was to be married to James in Scotland. Oh. At the very beginning, he actually did have a Spanish princess considered for him. So wanted one. And this may be why he became so fixated on having a Spanish princess later. So what happened to to Maria then? Mm. She didn't, didn't marry him. So Isabella was negotiating a peace between Scotland and England for what I can tell, three reasons. First, she wanted to try to get them to help with the war against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans were invading Italy Mm -hmm. to protect the kingdom that her daughter was going to be queen of and to try to get the Scots from helping the French in the war against Aragon. Yeah. This will change later. Yeah. With Isabella involved in the negotiations, we actually see a difference in the way they were usually negotiated. If you look at king-to-king negotiating, the happiness of the children is almost non-existent. They don't don't care. Mm. Um, Even stuff like arranging what they would have if their husband died and they became a dower, either a dower queen, dower princess, was almost completely ignored. They would have whatever incomes they had while they were a dower, But quite often they weren't given extra like you do see with other noble families. When the husband dies, they get income from some of their husband properties as well. Hmm. And also we see this later when um, Margaret is betrothed to James IV. And it's Margaret Beaufort and um, Elizabeth of York who's saying, she she can't go now, she's too young. Yes. And Henry's saying, "Eh, she'll be fine. Yeah. That they get their own way. Yes. So, yes, she wanted these alliances, but her children were to be married in her goal to men of similar ages, to themselves, wherever possible, were of good character, 
wherever possible. <laughs> Good luck finding one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and provided the best possibility of happiness for her children in the future. So her considerations of who she was willing to marry them to were actually fairly well thought out, but she also had to rely on what the diplomats were saying about their mm. future husbands. Do you think this is because she was feeling that Ferdinand was a complete waste of space? She was, wasn't very impressed with her own husband, so wanted to get a decent ones for her daughters. I'm not sure because she... Or did she In like the him? end, she and Ferdinand, she greatly loved him. He was not a good mm. husband. And I can say that very openly because he was rampantly... What's that called? <laughs> <laughs> he he was... Adulterous? Adulterous, thank you. He was <laughs> rampantly adulterous. And he then threw his illegitimate children in Isabella's face when she was not having children because he was not anywhere near her. He sounds like a thoroughly nasty piece of work. I don't like him. I may change yeah. my mind if one of yeah. us get completely different information. This is all yeah. from stuff that I've learned about her and there's always a little bit of bias in anybody's writing mm. but yeah <laughs> she also had to be passed around when she was a child and she was very opposed to that so i wonder if she was ensuring that her girls would not have this possibilities that she may have had like being eight and married to somebody who's 30 mm. like, eh, not very cool no. There was still a good deal of meat market in the negotiations. Henry VII was intent on a good dowry, as well as the procedure for the bride. The Spanish were actually shocked by how much Henry wanted. Uh, the kings of England were constantly being overthrown. How dare he ask for so much? That's where that quote saying, you should be glad they're willing to give you her daughter at all, because <laughs> <laughs> the kings are constantly being overturned. Isabella... Was well, you can see. You can, sorry, you can see now why they were so keen to get rid of Perkin and, mm -hmm. and young Edward. Yeah, because but Isabella. They yeah, they can't risk having uh, another king toppled and poor poor Catherine left high and dry, and possibly in danger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Isabella was also very clever when she did the marriage negotiations because not only. Did she do it through the diplomats for England and Spain? But she negotiated directly with Margaret Beaufort. <laughs> Good thinking. And Queen Elizabeth of oh. England. She went to the women. It was, it was very fascinating to oh. see some of this. They were probably more, there were more letters going back and forth between Isabella, Margaret, and Elizabeth. Quite often, Queen Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort were writing together. So they would be saying, we would like this, we would like that, which showed a cooperation that I think a lot of people gloss over. Mm. They were always saying that Margaret was like this yeah. dragon yeah, lady. mother-in-law <laughs> from hell. The, um, yeah, I suppose also she might expect the women to understand her concerns for her daughter in the way that Henry might yes. not. Or she might she might assume yes. Henry wouldn't. Yep. It it was it was really nice how you see the money aspect is focused on by the men and the dip diplomats. 
But her happiness, her health, and her ability to adapt to England is the focus of the letters between Margaret, Isabella, and and mm. Queen Elizabeth. They were almost nothing was mentioned about her dowry. There was a lot mentioned about clothing because the climate was colder in England than it was in Spain. And there was advice on how to prepare for that with furs and items that normally you wouldn't see in a Spanish queen's mm. dress. Mind you, it, gets, it does get cold in um, Spain in the winter. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. But Isabella, because of the issues that were happening with the Moors, spent more of her time in southern mm. Spain, closer to the Mediterranean. So I'm not sure if they would have experienced the same kind of yeah. persistent cold and humidity that you get in England. Yeah. No, I just know yeah. from having been in Mallorca in the winter, and bloody freezing. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get traveling. <laughs> Isabella was the one designing the terms of the dowry, who would accompany Catherine, what her official status would be, and what her upkeep would be to keep her in the required Spanish type of court. Isabella's was the important one. Ferdinand did not truly become involved until after her death. Isabella begged, and I do mean begged, she even said the word begged, Elizabeth and Henry to love her daughter. She even asked that the festivities of the marriage be moderate, but that the substantial part of the festival should be his love, that the princess should be treated by him and the queen as their true daughter. Yeah. She was more focused on making sure she was comfortable and happy. And Henry went completely overboard with the uh, with the ceremonies instead. Yeah. Mm. I understand why, but yeah. at the same time, it's kind of ridiculous. Mm. And also because we all know about Catherine of Aragon. What I mean, however much you know about the Tudors, you know about what happens to Catherine. And yeah. it's all, yeah, it's not, it's not going to pan out quite as Isabella had hoped, is it? No, not. It's going to go exactly the opposite mm. of what she had hoped. While all these negotiations were happening, Isabella's eldest daughter, Isabel, died in childbirth. Ooh. And that meant that they lost the alliance with Portugal. In the political climate of the time, that alliance had to be maintained. And Isabella reluctantly offered their fourth child, Maria, to... King Manuel I of Portugal. So that's why James didn't get him get her. Uh, exactly. What's interesting is that King Manuel didn't want her. Ooh. He was in love with Isabel, her older sister, who was quite a bit older. So there was quite an um, age difference between the two of them. But it was more important to avert the war on the peninsula than to attempt to stop Scotland from aiding the French because the Ottoman Empire were invading Italy. Mm. And Isabella was so religiously devout that she could not have Rome fall to the Muslims. Yeah. And also, the Perkin issue. James had sided with Perkin possibly by this point. And, yes, he and had. Um, the, the French weren't very happy about it. Yeah, so this is the one place of intrigue that you see where Isabella says, keep telling him he can have a Spanish princess, even though we don't have I one. Know. How did she think she'd get away with that? I have no idea. I mean, what were they going to give him? 
I, I don't know. I'm just going to pick all of them are gone by now. Yeah. Just pick up a woman from court and say, well, hey, have this one. Yeah, honestly, it's one yeah. of ours. Honestly. Well, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Isabella was still attempting to prevent Scotland from coming to the help of France in their war with Spain and wanted to secure the throne for Catherine. If Scotland and England were at war, she didn't want Catherine there. It was too dangerous. Mm. She felt it was too small of a country for her not to be physically in danger, which I found interesting because she was willing to take her children with her to battle lines. Mm. But she didn't want her daughters in the same situation. I mean, it's a, rel- it's a relatively I... small country, but I mean, there's... There's room, there's room to hide and room to get away. Yes. It's not that small. <laughs> well, when I started looking at why she could have thought of that, I started looking at maps at that time. Do you Have you ever seen any of the maps? The sure. maps are this weird, the focus of the center of the map is Rome. Yeah, or, or Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, like the map of Mundi. Yes, and Spain is very large, and the map was not a visual representation of the geography. It was a visual representation of Catholicism's importance. Right. So Spain looks massive. England looks tiny. Mm. So I can, it looks smaller than Portugal, and I'm pretty sure England is actually bigger. I'm not sure about that. But yes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So she's looking at Mm -hmm. these maps and thinking... There's no room to yes. run. <laughs> yes, you are side by side. You are going to be right at the battle lines. Mm. And, and it, yeah, I can't. At the same time, being an adult now, I know the stuff I did as a kid, which was not that smart. And I don't want my nieces to do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm more protective of them than I was of myself. Oh, yes, that's always so I, the way, isn't it? Yes, so yeah. I can understand why she would be like, I don't care that I did this, but you are not going yeah. to do this. Yeah. When, so when Maria was no longer available, Isabella wrote to Henry and explained or reiterated that Henry was never going to be secure on his throne if he always had to fight the Scots. And here, Perkin Warbeck actually aided her cause. So she had just brought up that Henry should marry his eldest daughter, Margaret, to James of Scotland to try to avert that war. He was pushing her. You um, seem to, every time it's, it's poor Margaret, to be shoved ahead and James was saying, I don't want her. I, I want a Spanish her. princess. Take it away. Yep. Yeah, Perkins' drawing of King James into the battle along the English border, which is, as we heard, more of a border raid, Mm. made Henry realize that she was correct and that he did have to neutralize Scotland. I don't know if we'll ever know if it was because of Isabella constantly pushing that he needed to provide a daughter and do a marriage alliance. But she definitely was the first to broach the subject because we've got her very first letter to Henry regarding this, April 26, 1496, years before this marriage was actually considered. And Henry very much replied that Margaret was too young and that James would not wait. Also, he said, quote, I would be delivering her to her destruction end quote, if he gave her to a man like James. I wonder what he was getting at there. 
I mean, was he talking about the, the man himself or the or the country or the, the fact that they were almost inevitably going to stay at war? There were already, I did look up a little bit about this. There were already rumors about how debauched James was when it came to women. Oh, really? And his poor behavior with them, apparently. I don't know if I'm reading too much into the way they wrote it because it is not current English. But it seemed like he was brutal to the women that he was involved with. Well, he was the amateur dentist. He obviously had a bit of a, a weird streak. Yeah. But it is interesting that yeah. it's one of the few times we see written down that Henry himself was protective of his daughters. Because it was him saying he didn't want to give it. But she but ended yes, up it, with him. Yes, she did. Well, we've got her on in the box. So uh, we'll find out from yeah, her point of view. That's going to be an interesting mm. one. You can she listen to Rex Factor for James's point of view and then ask for Margaret's. Yes. <laughs> We already heard about some of the interactions between the Spanish ambassadors and Perkin in your episodes, but I think I'd like to fill that out a bit more from Isabella and Ferdinand's perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, mostly Isabella. Mm -hmm. They were desperately trying to get Henry to aid them in stopping the French invasion of Italy now. They needed the longbowmen, and everybody is focused on the longbowmen. So it really tells you how important mm. they were in the military ventures of the world. Because they weren't going to be able to provide them with a large army, but it was still critical to have them, which I think is awesome. Mm. Yes, you'd be thinking, you'd assume that they'd be doing this for themselves. <laughs> they can they can see how these things are made, long bows, and they can surely train themselves, but it's still I the English. I don't know why, but mm. English were the best. No. They were absolutely the best, so that's what they were going for. Oh, what a proud moment. Yeah. <laughs> The French invasion of Italy initially had an easy entry. As we said, they claimed originally that they were there to help the Italians against the Ottomans, and then they decided to take over everything once they were there. I'm thinking they actually had that motive in the first place and were just using the Ottomans as an excuse. I think that's almost certain. Certain. Yeah. <laughs> Isabella and Ferdinand, now seeing Ferdinand's kingdom of Sicily under direct threat from the French on top of their threat to Aragon and the Ottomans coming in through the south of Italy, and they had landed in Italy. Yes, I should think, as far as Ferdinand was concerned, thank God for syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so gross. It is, but it did completely decimate Charles's army, and yes, he was then in no position to, to be a threat to Sicily. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, how all these things have become, I mean, Perkin and Syphilis and Isabella, they're all so important in all their different ways. Yes, and they have such an important change on what history could have ended mm. up. Mm. History is quite interesting, really, isn't it, on the choir? It really is, as we both sort of go off in our own little <laughs> yes. thoughts. <laughs> completely forgetting we're meant to be doing an audio podcast. <laughs> I'm going to shorten that delay. <laughs> I actually do that a lot in our sound editing, is you and I will sit there and we're thinking. You could see we're both thinking, but nobody on the other end can see that. They're just like, it's dead air. <laughs> Now, because of that direct threat against Aragon and Sicily, they now were 
pleading with Henry to join the Holy League and to throw the French out of Italy. They must have been Henry... so irritated with Maximilian because he is the spanner in the works, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. he would not. Every time Isabella sent diplomats to him to get him to give up Perkin, he kept saying, well, no, use him as a stick. Mm. And Isabella didn't negotiate that way. Mm. When you look at most of her negotiations, she uses the carrot. Like These are the benefits. She doesn't do threats very often. Mm. Yes, because there was a switch around. Just to, yeah, Max, yeah, Maximilian was saying, we can use Perkin. And everybody else was mm -hmm. saying, get rid of him. He's a pain in the backside. Yes. <laughs> Henry hedged that he could not join the Holy League because Perkin's threat to his crown. Mm. Isabella and Ferdinand then acted in a strange way. So first, Isabella tried to remove support from Perkin by attempting to convince, by attempting to convince Margaret of Burgundy that Perkin was a fake, which did not go over very no, well. No, no, she got very upset and said, "I'm not never talking to that woman again." <laughs> she was infuriated <laughs> with Isabella. The Spanish mar monarchs then attempted to have Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, give up his support of Perkin, like we said, so Henry would join the war. Again, that didn't work. No. Then, when Perkin arrived in Scotland, Isabella and Ferdinand sent ambassadors to Scotland to try to prevent a war between Scotland and England. If they began a war, neither Henry nor James would be able to help against either the Ottomans or the French. Mm. So you mentioned in your Perkin Warbeck episode that Isabella negotiated with Perkin. Well, the Spanish did. Yeah, I know. The, yeah, and the ambassador de Ayala um, was to offer safe haven to Perkin in Spain with Ferdinand and Isabella. And that seemed to be key in, in the notes was that he was going to be part of their court, which mm. was a surprise. So well, he, he did always seem to ingratiate himself into courts, didn't he? Yes, he did. Oh. I think they were appealing to the fact that he felt he deserved it by now, maybe, because he hey. was acting as Richard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he'd he been living in all the other courts. Why, why, why would he not live in the Spanish court? Yeah. I spent a lot of time running this down to try to answer the question of why, because that stuck in my head when we were doing the Perkin episode. I came to the conclusion that there are probably four possible outcomes that she was going for. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Isabella did not want Perkin around Catherine. She was a fiercely protective mother. Her dying wishes later were entirely for her children. What did she think? What Perkin himself, the man, rather than the general threat? No, I, it was the general threat yeah. that he was posing. Yeah. The first two possibilities are based on Isabella's strength and intelligence in negotiation. The historians and some of the contemporaries on this side of the fence believe that Isabella intended to hold Perkin prisoner to ensure her daughter's safety and as a bargaining chip in the negotiations to force Henry to provide more handsomely for their daughter, either as queen or dowager. That seemed to be part of her right. goal. And then Henry was convinced... But I think he assumed that they were going to hand him over, didn't he? Yes. 
Second for this negotiation was they were also wanting to remove this threat against Henry and to allow Henry and James of Scotland to come to a peace arrangement, which was impossible with Perkin in Scotland. Mm. And she was more focused on getting them to be at peace so that they could then help them with the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. The last two options for the reasoning are more based on Isabella's ruthlessness in war which you won't know about until we do the Patreon episode. (laughs) Patreon, Patreon. (laughs) In case we haven't mentioned it. (laughs) The historians and contemporaries on this side believe that Isabella was intending to use Perkin as a stick to force Henry to join the war against the French. Or... We'll release him if you don't... Yes. Yeah. Or we'll hand him over to the... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or that the monarchs had never intended to harbor Perkin at all. Once they had him, he would have had an accident mm. or a fatal illness. Mm. I don't know which is worse, really. Quite a number of people push that. Yeah. I'm not sure if Isabella herself would have done that, but Ferdinand definitely would have. Right. Mm. Well, did Perkin have a lucky escape, or did, did it get even worse when he got to England? Well, it definitely got worse when he got to England. Mm. I mean, at least if it had been in Spain, it would have been a quick end. All of those options have a grain of truth and all are very possible, so I actually didn't come up with an answer. <laughs> yeah, it's probably one of these many, many historical things where you've just got to accept that any one of them could <laughs> could be it. Yes, I think we'll put a poll up and see Mm. what our listeners think. They may have more information than we do. Mm. Yeah, I must admit, I hadn't really thought of him having a little accident. But it just seemed the obvious solution, doesn't it? It does. It really does. As the Ottomans moved against Eastern Europe, the popes begged for help from England and Scotland, One of Isabella's reasons for arranging the English marriage was attempting to get them to join the fight of the Ottomans. That was probably her main issue. She was less concerned about the war with France than she was about the Ottomans getting into Italy. The Ottomans were a huge threat and nobody seemed to to take it seriously, apart from the Venetians, I suppose, because they were right bang splat in the the firing line, weren't they? And where Greece got taken over. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually added... um, Sultan Mehmet, who is this emperor that is the doing the invading into our list of possible Patreon subjects, because, wow, is it interesting. Mm. Like, even just describing their court would be so amazing. And it's a huge chunk out in this, in this period of history that if we don't do it, we'll be ignoring quite an One important One of the major bit. concerns. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Most believe that Henry VII joined the Holy League against the French primarily because of Isabella's pressure, with the implications that the wedding with Catherine would not happen if he didn't join. So much hinges on this wedding, doesn't it? It really does. There is a lot that I thought had nothing to do with England and Isabella, and then I'm looking at it going, oh. (laughs) Yes, I mean, the, the, the whole of this podcast is just showing us how interlinked everything is everything is (laughs) absolutely everything in 1496 they finally finally finalized the marriage agreement between arthur and catherine 
So how long did that, did that take all in all? Years. Yeah. I'd like to tell you exactly, but we don't have the specific date that they started the negotiations. Right. We know that approximately Arthur was an infant and that Catherine was around two years old. And they, I think he was he was 14 when they married, weren't they? Yes. Mm. Uh, she, in 1496, is around 12 or 13. So we're looking possibly 10 years, mm. maybe more. While all of this was going on in England and Scotland, Isabella's daughter, Juana, was sent to marry Philip of Burgundy. Mm. I bring this up because she was partly sent there because she was trying to get Burgundy to release their alliance with Perkin Warbeck. Yes. Again, totally interlaced. Mm. The voyage was also going to be ridiculously hazardous. I had not realized just how dangerous it was to be in the English Channel when they didn't have powered ships, and the ships were still relatively small. We're not talking about the Spanish Armada that came around for Elizabeth I, where they were very, very large and slow. They were more stable. Um, it was hazardous enough that... Isabella sent 110 ships to ensure that she arrives safely now in Burgundy. Now, that's a fleet. <laughs> that's a fleet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, these some of the ships that went across the Atlantic were tiny, weren't they? I mean, Columbus's yeah, and, and Cabot's were, were minute. Yep. Mm. And I would really encourage, if you are on any uh, Atlantic coastal city... Um, from the entire side of North America, there are ship museums that have recreations or, in some cases, preserved ships from that time period. Mm. And um, I was in Nova Scotia when they had they had a specific exhibit for the ships that had originally come across with John Cabot, mm -hmm. but they didn't mention him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it poor was. Cabot. <laughs> minute mm. it was tiny compared it's it almost felt like one of those little tiny just sailing boats that you see people now where only three or four people would have been on mm. it but they fit like 20 people on yeah, it 18 with Cabot, yeah absolutely insane and you wonder how they don't just immediately capsize with some of the storms that you can see on like national geographic going over some of the barges when you see those gigantic waves come up and over, Ooh. no wonder so many people died on the ocean. Yeah. So the English Channel was incredibly hazardous. So not only did she send her with 110 ships. And pirates, of course. And pirates, mm. yes. Isabella also sent, we have records of four letters and they, there are implications in the letters that more were sent. She sent letters to Henry to arrange a safe haven for Juana in England should she possibly be shipwrecked there. She sent the letters to Henry. She sent the letters to Queen Elizabeth. She sent the letters to Margaret Beaufort. <laughs> it was, please, please, please take care of my daughter. I can, I can sympathize with that entirely. I mean, she's sending her little precious thing out. Yeah. Ah, oh, horrifying and terrifying. 
I, I mean, I and you have no from, contact. From, you won't know for a couple yeah. of months. I only know it from the kids having gap years. <laughs> you think that's terrifying? You had said. <laughs> There have been a lot of comments that Isabella and Ferdinand would not let Catherine go to England until both Earl of Warwick and Perkin Warbeck were removed. Removed? I, <laughs> yes. That was the polite term. Mm. I couldn't find a primary source for this. Right. I mean, I found letters from diplomats referring to it, but I found absolutely nothing explicitly stating to have them killed. It doesn't mean it didn't happen or it didn't exist. It just means I wasn't I wasn't able to find it. Would it be the sort of thing you'd write down, kill those people? Or is it the sort of thing you'd you'd have a little word with your ambassador and say, just have a little word in Henry's ear and get I don't him removed? Know. I don't know. It's not the sort of thing you want a paper trail of, really, is it? That you've no. you've told another power to kill a couple of his citizens, possibly one of his citizens. Even though they may be innocent, I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure if our listeners know. I'm on in southern BC. Lucy is in Somerset, England. <laughs> a lot of this stuff, for me specifically, if it's not available online as a research paper or through my university or through a government site that they have allowed me graciously access. Thank you very much. <laughs> the uh, English library and Cambridge. I like Cambridge. They're <laughs> very nice. They reply really quickly. <laughs> if it hasn't been digitized, I don't have access to it. Mm. So it may exist. They haven't completed those libraries. So it could possibly exist. They just haven't gotten to it. I mean, COVID has greatly expanded what is available online. Yeah. But there's no way it's going to be completed anytime soon. So that letter could exist. And a, another historian may have actually read it. And that's how everybody is saying that they had required them to be put to death. But I didn't find it. Mm. I was able to find evidence of the Spanish ambassador to England, de Puebla, being present during Warbeck's interrogation after the escape Lucy mentioned. And the letter where he does tell the Spanish monarchs that they can relax, that there is not, quote, a drop of doubtful royal blood, end quote. In yes, England. he used the word cleanse in that thing, which made me cringe. Yes. <laughs> The tone of that letter from de Puebla is definitely allaying free fears. Mm. And he is definitely saying, you know what? I know you've been concerned about this and I know you wanted them gone. Hey, they're gone. Hey. There is a quite a prominent author, Giles Tremlett, uh, who is a historian. He's done an amazing book on Isabella. And he claimed, quote, the pretenders have been executed in part to calm Isabella's worries. Perkin and Edward were executed November 14, November of 1499, end quote. So somewhere he found something that said, yes, Isabella wanted, specifically Isabella wanted them removed. It's desperately sad, isn't it? It really is. Mm, two young lads. But it also shows a mother who is that protective. Mm. And cat. I... I'm, I want to say callous to death, but when you've been at war on battlefields... Yeah, well, I mean, we've got to do it completely different. 
outlook on life these days, haven't we? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned before, Queen Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort were in direct communication with Isabella to discuss domestic issues through the entirety of the negotiations. So we find quite a number of letters spanning over a long time, even before the arrangement for the marriage was concluded. They were working on the opinion that these two were going to be married from a very young age. Water in England was not safe to drink compared to Spain. In Spain, they were drinking water. Mm. Margaret and Elizabeth requested that Catherine be accustomed. Margaret and Elizabeth were asking that Catherine be accustomed to drinking wine because that was the safest drink in England. Later, when Isabella's son's wife arrived in Spain from Burgundy... Margaret and Elizabeth again wrote to Isabella, hoping that Catherine would spend as much time as possible with Margaret from Burgundy so that she could learn French because the English did not speak Spanish. There was nobody in the royal household that could speak Spanish. Henry preferred French, didn't he? Yes. Mm. And I remember we discussed at one time, I'm not sure if it was during Margaret's episode that Catherine came not able to speak French. I think so. It turns out, yeah, Margaret of Burgundy didn't get to spend much time in Spain because Juan passed away. Right. So there didn't end up being that much time for her to learn French from Margaret. I had just assumed that that somehow got neglected, but it wasn't neglect. It was the loss of Isabella's only son Mm. that stopped that. In January 20th, 1500, we're moving along, the Ottoman Empire were again on the move. They had paused to regroup for a bit, and Isabella and Ferdinand were frantic. They were begging again, and this, in their own words again, begging Henry VII to help fight back the Ottomans. It is interesting that we haven't really heard much about the Ottomans at all. In any of this, and, and I, I, mean, so I mentioned it here. in the, the Pope Alexander episode. But really, I was mentioned it saying, and Isabella was the one telling them, "Pull your fingers out. This is important." Yes. <laughs> so it's all her, and yet it's we've not mentioned it in any other episode. No. Maybe, no, maybe because I suppose England was relatively safe because we're over the over the water, or we yep. think we're relatively safe. But what's interesting here is when we discussed the alum trade earlier, Henry was getting the alum through the Venetians. So they were a major trading partner, which is one of the reasons why he felt he could drop the trading with Burgundy. Mm. The Ottomans were invading that area. They were. They were working their way up up the coast, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. And when mm. Isabella and Ferdinand sent all those letters to Henry begging them to help Ferdinand and Isabella fight back the Ottomans from Venice... Henry refused, saying that, well, it can't be actually happening because the Venetians hadn't asked him for help. But they'd asked the... they got the Holy League, couldn't they? Yes, and they were asking Isabella and Ferdinand, but it seems strange that with the Venetians being such a major trading partner of England, you would think that they would have asked him for help as well. But he's saying he never 
got a letter. So he said basically implying uh, they don't need help because they haven't asked me for help. So they're obviously fine. Or, or is he saying I'm not helping unless they ask, <laughs> unless they think unless know. they think I'm important enough to ask. I'm not going to help. I have no idea. Yeah. But what I yeah. started thinking about at this part of the research was why the heck are they marrying Catherine to this man's family? <laughs> Everything they've asked him for, he has said no. Yeah, and I didn't find an answer. Maybe for she's it. used to that because she's she's had it all, all her married life with uh, Ferdinand. <laughs> Ferdinand. That's what that's what men are like. That's what kings do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would make sense because not just Ferdinand. Ferdinand's father was like that. Oh. Enrique was like that. Maybe she just assumed that you can't get men to do anything at all. But then why would you arrange the marriage? Well, it's going to be with some king's son, isn't yeah. it? But but it boggles yeah. the mind. Like this is not. A worthy alliance. What are you getting out of this? Apparently, nothing. They must be. I mean, they wouldn't. Um, it certainly Isabella wouldn't waste a daughter. When I mean, she could have. She could have so. given her to James. I mean, James is desperate for a Spanish princess. <laughs> <laughs> this was the year that Isabella arranged a reluctant marriage between her eldest daughter's widower. Manuel I of Portugal and her fourth daughter, Maria. Isabel had to pay a huge dowry to get Manuel to accept her. That's awful, isn't it? How, how would you yeah. feel if you knew that your mother had to, had, had to pay extra because your husband didn't want you? I'm not sure. Manuel kept stressing that, for one, he didn't want to remarry. He had been so in love with her hmm. eldest daughter, Isabel, that he couldn't consider marrying again whereas Isabella wanted to ensure that they never went to war and she felt the only way she could do that was by giving her giving Manuel her youngest daughter and she was so focused at this point on the Ottomans coming that everything else sort of went on the sidelines mm. a papal dispensation was required because Manuel had married her elder sister Maria's elder sister, and they had had a child. And I bring this up because so, Catherine had to get the same dispensation. Yes, that sounds quite familiar. Yeah, <laughs> except he couldn't—he couldn't say, "Oh no, we didn't," because they quite obviously had. Whereas right. Catherine did. Yeah, because she said she hadn't. If it makes any yeah. sense at all, <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> That's the annoying part. We'll never know. Mm. I think they must have done. It's not just that once. It was lots of lots of nights. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they did. Well, this gave us an indication of just what kind of money a papal dispensation cost, really. Mm -hmm. They were, at this point, still friends with the Pope, Mr. Rodrigo Borgia. Lovely mm -hmm. man. They were allies and friends. And even then, in order to get the dispensation, Ferdinand had to make the Pope's nephew, Louis Borgia, the Archbishop of Valencia, and provide him with a very handsome living. So you're not getting the dispensation because you're good people. You're getting it because you helped out my nephew and gave him a ton of money. But that was the Borgia way, wasn't it? It really was. Family. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, and I wanted to put this in in case anybody was worried for her, this marriage between Maria and Manuel ended up being just as happy, if not happier, 
they were incredibly in love with each other in the end. They were very, very prolific in their children. And everybody mentions the little public displays of affection, like him him touching her quite often Aww. and her smiling when he did it and that kind of thing whenever they were in public. He sounds like a nice man. He does. <laughs> I'm afraid to do him. <laughs> <laughs> Because right now I've got this idea of a gentleman who's now found this young bride that he's just doting over. And that's what it comes across as. And I'm worried we're going to end up... And he loved the previous one. So, yeah. Yeah. We, we haven't got him on the list, our list, have we? Or we, we didn't when we started. No, we do not. <laughs> but we. I was wondering if you wanted to add him in. Because if we don't, it's going to be very difficult for us to discuss the battle between Portugal and Spain for the New Worlds. So we might have Put to... Put him in, in then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's getting added to the list. Oh. <laughs> We're never going to get to Henry VIII, are we? <laughs> That's we fine. Will, I'm really will. enjoying Henry VII because it's... Me too. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yes, it's great. I thought we weren't going to get into any really juicy bits until we got to Henry VIII, but this has been a massively amazing journey. Mm, it really has. And not, well, I say it's a journey. We're just sort of running round and round like rats in a maze, really, aren't we? <laughs> we <kind of> are. <laughs> it might have made more sense if we had tried to do it linearly, except we've got so many people at the exact same time that I think our way of doing it was just pulling names. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. And I like, I like the... Uh... The, the randomness of it. Me too. Because you think, oh, well, I've got someone who's got nothing to do with anybody else. And then you discover, oh, no, they've got everything to do with everybody else. That's what this was like. I was yeah. like, great. I'm going to spend months and months trying to pull out information. And because we did have that break during December. So I did get extra time with her, thankfully, because I read about seven books. <laughs> I just kept finding more and more things that I thought, like, Juana and Philip, okay, they're going to have absolutely nothing to do with England. Actually, no, it was almost expressly to complete mm. that alliance. It, it's, it was really surprising how many little threads were joined in mm. to that tapestry. Why did I pick that as such <laughs> a weird analogy? <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> if you pull on a string, <laughs> hey, here's England. <laughs> But yes, Maria was a very happy woman, apparently. Oh, she gosh. was incredibly distressed later when her husband died, or was it the other way around? I can't remember, because I didn't research him. <laughs> the final daughter of their family, Catalina, or as we know her, Catherine, was approaching the right age to join her bridegroom. Isabella had insisted that Catherine be addressed as the Princess of Wales from an early stage of the negotiations, basically within a week of when it was broached, apparently. What? <laughs> she's now the Princess of Wales. They haven't even completed it, but she's the Princess of Wales. <laughs> but Isabella couldn't let her go. She kept finding or creating excuses to delay her leaving because she just she couldn't let go of yet another child. She was the last one with her. Uh, in 1499, Arthur wrote to Catherine asking when she would come, pleading for her to come. In 1500, a year later, Margaret Beaufort also asked, as well as sending instructions on how to help prepare Catherine for living in England, including the climate. Isabella was reluctant to let Catherine go for many reasons, but they were actually preparing. 1497 has records of Catherine being with the Queen, preparing for her move to England, 
And it's lovely. They are purchasing clothes and goods that will survive or help her survive in England in the climate, specifically looking at furs. They were collecting her dowry, which was in the form of plate that would accompany her to England. But it would still be a few more years before Isabella was willing to give her up. The marriage negotiations were done. Technically, she kept saying, well, Arthur's not old enough. Arthur's not old enough. But even when he was old enough, she still didn't want to let her go. We had Is He it... had to get a paper dispensation because he wasn't old enough, didn't he? Oh, I don't remember. I think so. Because he was 14 instead of... But 14 was the age for boys yeah. in England. Or was she 14 and he was 12? Oh, I don't know. Hmm. No, he wouldn't have been 12 because he was 14 or 15 for their marriage, for their wedding night. Yeah. Hmm? Oh, perhaps I got that wrong. I don't know. Now I can't remember. It's been a while since we did Arthur. I should take all that bit out with us saying, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> can't remember. Can't remember. <laughs> it was actually two years after the proxy wedding that Isabella was finally convinced to let Catherine go. The problem was Isabella had now started ailing. Her health was declining badly. And both Catherine and Isabella knew that when Catherine left, they would never see each other again. And so Isabella just didn't want to let her go. And it goes back to talking about how close her relationships with her children were that the English were so surprised about. But Henry was, after all of this, so eager to get Catherine, he actually told a visitor from Spain that he would give up half his kingdom if Catherine was anything like her mother. Which was quite a big lie, because he wasn't willing to give up anything. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice for him to say. That's our Henry. <laughs> yep. Because she does. She was the one pushing for everything and arranging all the battles. And she would have been an amazing queen. Catherine would have been. And we know that she was a good queen. Hmm. As we know from our episode on Arthur, Catherine and Arthur were not married for long. Well, after all of this, it, it makes yes. it even more tragic. I mean, we don't want a yeah. young lad to die anyway. But after all this effort, yeah. and it only lasts a few months. Isabella was alerted immediately. And for that, that's actually only a couple of months later. Uh, I am started finding it interesting about letters and how long they actually took to get from one place to another. You could sometimes wait months. And that people would send several letters to mm. ensure one of them got through, which was also interesting. As soon as Isabella learned of Arthur's death, she immediately offered two options to England. Either send Catherine home which was actually her preference, yeah. or marry her to Prince Henry. King Henry would consider the marriage to his younger son, but he required the rest of the dowry to be paid before he would consider it. And he started treating Catherine... Why is she putting up with this man? I don't <laughs> know. But what's interesting is Elizabeth of England is still alive. Catherine is being treated so beautifully at this time. Elizabeth and her grieved together. They remained, or Catherine remained in Elizabeth's household. Mm. They were apparently quite affectionate with each other, and Isabella was grateful that Elizabeth was taking such good care of Catherine. It wasn't until Elizabeth died that Catherine's status and life started 
spiraling out of control and being treated so poorly. Henry comes out of this really badly, doesn't he? He really does, especially when you find out that it was not very long after his wife's death, and he's treating Catherine poorly, that he writes to Isabella, suggesting that Catherine marry him instead of his son, Prince Henry. She's not going to go for that. Uh, mm. Isabella replied, quite horrified. By saying, Ugh. I quote, It would be a very terrible thing, one never seen before, and the mere mention of which offends the ears. Mm. End I quote. mean, not just as he, he's considerably older than she is, which is what she wanted to avoid. Yes. But she's her husband's dad. And she is disgusted by yeah. this. Apparently, she was extremely angry when she read his letter. And that's the response she sent back to him. It was not couched diplomatically. It was just like, you have just offended me. <laughs> mm. I think it's offended everybody. Not Well, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> no. I mean, it's quite shocking, isn't it? It really is quite it shocking. It really is. Mm. The possible consummation of Catherine's marriage to Arthur, as we've discussed, required a papal dispensation if she were now to marry Henry. Isabella, unfortunately, could not ask for the dispensation. Mm. For a very long time, she had turned a blind eye to the Pope's sins. Eventually, she could not, and she was now full-on fighting with the Pope over his behavior and corruption right. and how he was leading the church. At least somebody was saying it. Well, we have to understand that Isabella was very, how do we put it, adamantly stamping out corruption in the church in Spain. Right. And I do mean adamantly. I won't go into details for that, but she started to... Would that, would that be on our Patreon episode? That would be on our Patreon episode. <laughs> There's quite a big thing about it. Did originally attempt to gently push the Pope towards making changes to his behavior. It didn't work. Then Savonarola, who you have mentioned before, mm -hmm. uh, started crying out for the Pope to reform the church, and she tried to push the Pope to make the changes that the friar had said, but the Pope loathed him by now for embarrassing him and calling out his behavior. Understandable. Yes, so the Pope resented that she took his side. Then the Pope wanted to make... I'm still unsure about this, and maybe you can answer it. The Pope was sending out to all of his archbishops that he wanted their the archbishops and the cardinals to wear flamboyant clothing, things that have more opulent courts to make people understand the power of the status that they had and the power of the church. No, right, I didn't know that, but I can see I can under, I can see his thinking behind it. Yeah, yeah, but part of me was wondering. Okay, this is at a time where now everybody's telling you you're spending too much money looking good, you're spending too much money on opulence, are you asking them to do it so that you can keep doing it because now it looks normal? Or are you actually trying to get them to do it because you want the people to perceive the church as more powerful? Well, I know what which one he would have said it was. 
Yeah. I don't know. I think it'd be very hard to get into the mind of Alexander. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I couldn't tell, hmm. but the Archbishop of Toledo, his name was Cisneros. He was a very ascetic person, which means he, hmm. he wore plain clothing, very plain clothing. He wore a hair shirt underneath his clothing. He rode a donkey whenever he went anywhere. He had a very small household. There were no decorations on his house. That's what an ascetic is like. Didn't eat opulent food. He ate plain food. The Pope was not impressed with this and sent out uh, letters demanding that he change. And then he sent a cardinal to Isabella to demand her to force Cisneros to either do his amendments or force him to resign. What a bizarre situation. You're getting in touch with another, another power to tell one of your cardinals to dress up a bit. Yeah. Mm. Isabella didn't respond very well. She said, and I quote, and this comes down in multiple sources, Are you in your senses? Do you know whom you are addressing? There was no way she was going to take the Pope's side on this, and this ultimately broke their relationship. She somehow managed to force the Pope to back down in regards to any of the Spanish cardinals or archbishops. Hmm. But, yeah, they were no longer friends. Yeah. You've got two pretty big egos there clashing against each other, haven't you? Oh, yeah. She made it even worse, though. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. He in had it coming. <laughs> In 1499, Isabella sent an ambassador to Rome and had him read out loud in the court with hundreds of people as witnesses a loud reprimand to the Pope for his immorality and his designs for his illegitimate children. And she specifically raised his immorality and behavior and expected him to repent. She's telling the Pope to repent, and she did it publicly. Things went so downhill from here. <laughs> I'd love to. I don't know if he did. He leap up and tell the bloke to shut up, or did he just sit there with a rictus grin on his face, just taking it? The only thing that I found that mentioned what he was reacting to was the fact that some people thought he was going to go into an apocalyptic fit. Oh, he, he went, was. Yeah, some people said he was um, epileptic, epileptic or something. Yes. Yeah, he went purple and started frothing. Mm, that's not a good sign. <laughs> like he was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> but this is exactly when now Catherine needed a dispensation to marry <laughs> Arthur. <laughs> it's not Oops. as if you can go to another pope. You, can, you can't say, no. "Well, I've messed up. I messed up with that one." <laughs> we're not. We're not in the time of two popes anymore. No. Yeah. So for this dispensation for Catherine and Arthur, she finally had to rely on her husband for something. And did he actually do it or did he go, eh? Uh, he did. So there was no way Borgia would ever provide the dispensation to Isabella. But this is one situation where the political separation that Isabella maintained between Castile and Aragon really paid off. It allowed an avenue for negotiation for Isabella that would have been closed if she had allowed Ferdinand to be king of both countries. Ferdinand and Borgia were still allies, politically, and they were personal friends. Is this where Juan gets 
Yes. <laughs> so I was beginning to join the dots. <laughs> yes. Right, okay. <laughs> because Ferdinand was still friends with Borgia, with Juan Borgia and everything, and they found a Spanish princess for him to marry, they were about to get the dispensation, even though Isabella and the Pope were just totally hating each other, when Borgia died. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just given abrupt. you all this stuff and money and a title and a girl <laughs> and you're dead. It wasn't until Pope Julius, who became the Pope after Borgia's successor. So mm. there was a quick, there was quite a quick one after that, wasn't there? Yeah, and that was somebody that apparently Isabella was elated about because he was an ascetic. So she figured that the papacy was now going to be reformed. But Pope Julius did end up giving the dispensation for Catherine and Arthur. He was no ascetic, though, was he? <laughs> no. <laughs> He's another of our lovely syphilitic popes. Was he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, we haven't done him yet, but I got the impression he's he'd be an interesting one to do. And, of course, we get the Alan yeah. trade when we do him as well. Yes. Very much so. Which we've I'm... been we've we've been plugging since the very first episode. We haven't had a chance <laughs> to talk about it yet. <laughs> well, it's funny because it's the only contraband that we hear about. Mm. You don't get a lot of alum smuggling these days, do you? No, no. Between fifteen o two and fifteen o four, Isabella started declining rapidly. In October fifteen o four, do we know what was wrong with her? Sort of. I'm assuming it's cancer. She mm. suffered from dropsy and began having tumors and lumps under her skin. Ooh. Exceptionally painful. She was always in pain. Um, Catherine wrote to Isabella to find out how she was doing November 26 of 1504. And this is where we found that multiple copies were sent. So she sent them with various people to ensure that a copy got to her mother. Isabella was clinging to life and it sounds very much that the only thing keeping her alive was ensuring that she got a dispensation for Catherine to marry. Very soon after it arrived, like within a couple of days, she gave up the fight and on the same day that Catherine was writing to her on November 26, 1504, she died. She was 53. Hmm. This not did a great not... age, but... No. Better than most. Yeah. This didn't stop her from influencing people. <laughs> <laughs> her death didn't stop her from doing anything. In her will, she demanded that her daughters Catherine and Maria's dowries, which were the only two left outstanding, were paid and paid in full and paid immediately. <laughs> she specifically in her will said it needed to be done to ensure their marriages would not have financial recriminations that could harm their happiness. But immediately when she died, and I do mean immediately, like within a couple of hours, Ferdinand sent letters to Henry VII informing him that Juana was now Queen of Castile, but Ferdinand was in control. Right, yeah. He also disregarded everything he possibly could in Isabella's will, including the instructions to pay off any dowries. You'd have thought he'd... He'd be as keen to have the dowry as she was. Mm, nope. Because mm. then he'd have to give up money. 
Yeah. For Catherine in England, Isabella's death had a dreadful impact, not just on her emotions. Her value in the eyes of the English had now incredibly diminished. Instead of being the daughter of the Catholic monarchs of Castile and Aragon, Sicily and Naples, because they now took control mm -hmm. of Naples, and the daughter of the implacable queen, Isabella, who could and would demand proper treatment of her children. She was now just the daughter of Ferdinand, whose word could not be relied on, mm -hmm. and the sister of Mad Queen Juana, who was not even in control of her own country. Was she a mad queen at this time? But was Philip still alive? Philip was already pushing that she was not mentally well enough to be queen, so he wanted to be queen. He or king, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's, that's an aspect we've not looked at. Um, all right. Ooh. Yeah, so he was setting it up to be mad queen Juana quite early. Mm. Yeah, I remember when I read <sighs> The Winter King... I st strongly felt he was gaslighting her, but I'm not sure. I think she wasn't very well, was she? I'm not sure either. Mm. The fact that her grandmother, Isabella's mother, also went mentally ill mm. with grief to the point where she couldn't take care of herself or her children. They had to bring in nurses for her. Makes you think that it ran in the family. Mm -hmm. oh, well, we'll find out. We haven't done either of those two yet, so... No. I think we should do Juana before Philip, but with us pulling things mm. randomly, we're not going to be able to arrange that. But anyway. Well, I've got a 50-50 um, chance. Yes. <laughs> I would like to think that had Isabella lived, she would have, as she intended, completed the payment of the dowry and ensured Catherine would have married Prince Henry as soon as he was of age to marry Partly because that was exactly the way she was going. She was waiting for that dispensation. That was the only thing keeping her alive, mm. and that's what the courtiers said. They feared that when she did get the dispensation that that would be her end, and it was. Mm. Also, Catherine's Henry's treatment of Catherine plummeted when Isabella passed away. What did um, Margaret Beaufort and, and Elizabeth have to say about it? I mean, surely... Elizabeth the... had passed away. Oh, that's right. Of course she had. But what about mum? She had retired because of her arthritis and her pain. Ah. Uh. So she was no longer as active at court. She only came back to court when Henry was so ill that mm. he could not function. Henry was acting on his own, and he was acting very, very, very poorly. He really did, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting to know that when I looked at the dates on both sides... It was as soon as he found out Isabella was dead that he now could treat Catherine so badly. Mm. Like, there was a bit of implication that he was not treating her very well because Catherine had mailed, sent a message to her mother saying, I'm not, I don't have this, I don't have that. And Isabella encouraged her to be a dutiful daughter to the king until, so they could figure this out. Almost like, if you behave, I'm, I'm getting this done, just please be patient. But that went totally out the window when Isabella was taken out of the out of the picture. But that also implies that he wasn't treating her that well before if she didn't have half the stuff. No, but 
when she passed away was when all of a sudden she was no longer getting her payments. Mm. She was no longer like she was struggling with her duenna at that time. And instead of replacing her duenna like her mother would have done, mm-hmm. which was something they That's had discussed. Yeah. 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 No, duenna is duenna is a u- unique position. It's sort of a governess. But when the duenna goes to another country with a princess, they maintain the morality of the household in the Spanish likeness. Right. So they're almost maintaining a Spanish court inside an external court. Hmm. A side note that we didn't discuss in here, but I really wanted to bring it up. Slavery. Mm-hmm. Slavery was incredibly common in Spain. They would enslave the Moors after a battle. Nice. Oh, God. It, it, we didn't have it in England for quite a no, while. No, but, but my question is, um, one historian mentions that Isabella ensured that each of her daughters had three or four slaves attend them and go with them to the country that they were being married to. Did Catherine bring her slaves with her? I suppose they could have done a bit of semantics, couldn't they, and changed the word to servant once they came over to them on the English shore. But that historian was pretty clear cut that each of her daughters were sent off with slaves as well as ladies in waiting and mm. attendants. I was just thinking once they once they arrived in England they might not have pushed pushed been pu- slaves well, anymore. They might not have been called slaves anymore. Right. I don't know, I'm just speculating right. that. Hmm. Oh, nasty. I don't know. The other question I have is if Isabella had survived and Catherine had maintained her importance. I wonder if it still would have ended up with the Battle of Wills between Henry VIII and Catherine. I don't know. There's so much that went sideways after she died. Mm. I mean, but I mean, even if she hadn't, I doubt Catherine would have had the hardships that she had until the marriage to Henry had occurred, because Isabella wouldn't have no. stood for it. Hmm. I don't know. But now we have to rate her. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. This is a bit awkward because we are rating her specifically on her interactions with England. Amphiboly. Amphiboly. This is our entry ground. How devious were they? I'm really unsure if we can attribute very much intrigue to Isabella. She was a fierce negotiator, and she had a very real impact on England and Henry II and Scotland and their political climate between those two countries. But I didn't find any mention of spies or her doing any weird maneuvering except for them offering Perkin Warbeck a quote-unquote safe haven. Well, and also offering James a, a wife that didn't exist. Hmm. Yes, that's it. Everything else, all of the letters that you can read from her. She seems quite upfront. Mm. Very. Even to the point of insulting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yes. All I can say is we're looking at the negotiation aspect. I mean, she's a good negotiator, and that's... Does that count as intrigue? I'm not sure. I mean, is intrigue necessarily cloak and dagger? Devious. Under the table stuff, or is it... Is it getting your own way as much as anything? I don't know. Hmm. I'm going to look up a definition of intrigue. Make secret plans to do something illicit or detrimental to someone. Secret plans. Well, she wasn't secretive. Secret plans. Apart from that occasion with James. Use the... Yeah, we could use the other definition of intrigue, which is to arouse the curiosity or interest of or to fascinate a person. Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> that just opens up way too many, way um, too many I'm things. I'm going to give her a six, I think, because it might not be secretive, but she's damn good at it. And she's yes. got her finger in a lot of pies. Every pie. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fingers in a lot of pies, not one finger in a lot of pies. Well, I don't know. There's pies and fingers anyway, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the problem that she doesn't have, or I found no indication of spies. Mm. And other than those two notes for her negotiations with Perkin and telling James that he could have a daughter that didn't exist. Hmm. I think I'm going to match your six because she still had such an impact through her negotiation and her diplomacy. I mean, that's how she did things, wasn't it? I mean, it was through. Yeah. 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 And she expected people to do as they're told. (laughs) Even people who thought, hang on a minute, I'm the the king of the Romans. (laughs) I'm the king. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) I say no. (laughs) That is a 12 for Amphiboly. Yeah. Antiperistasis. Antiperistasis. This is rise and fall. Did they climb or plummet? Well, she didn't rise and fall very much, really, did she? Actually, she did. Oh, right, okay. Oh, I'll shut up then. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted to give her pretty high marks for antiperistasis. She was born as a superfluous woman to the crown. Mm-hmm. She was not supposed to get the crown. Oh, this would have been intrigue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so she was she was originally third in line to the crown, and then when her brother had his daughter Juana, she became fourth in line to the crown. Her younger brother passed away, then Enrique did, and before his death was announced, she arranged to be proclaimed queen instead of the rightful heir to the throne, which was Juana, and it was that that made her queen rather than just a princess. But two she people also... died so that she could become queen. Is but there any she, intrigue there? there? No, but she had almost no support for being proclaimed queen and still managed to successfully do it. You can't imagine. Yeah, you can imagine her much set, set her mind to it. She would successfully do it, wouldn't she? Especially since she was a female. Mm. Like Castile had had two queens prior, but. One was queen only until her son reached the age of majority, and then she was required to give it up. And the other was because one of the kings had become mentally incompetent. And again, she was only queen, he was still alive, until her son made the age of majority. So they were essentially regents 
So while they did say a woman could rule, there really had been no precedent for this. On top of that, she did it by a coup. Mm. It was not legitimate. She had to find a way to do it and disinherit the rightful ruler. So I'd say that's pretty darn high. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hadn't really thought of that. I thought of her as being part of the royal family and then still being part of the royal family. Yeah. But when she was little, they were in poverty. They actually were living in a convent. Mm. Um, yeah, okay, yes, that's, that's pretty high. Not only that, most of the rest of the world started listening to her. Certainly <laughs> listening did, to her certainly did, doing, yeah. Doing what she told them to. Yeah. Um, a seven, because, I mean, she's still a member of the royal family. I'm not going to give her massive amounts, but she's 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 not done a Cromwell or anything. She's not come from nothing, but she has... True. I am going to give her an eight just for the fact that she's female and managed to get the crown. And on top of that, she managed to keep it from Ferdinand. Yeah. He was not king. He was... The husband of the queen. That was his official designation. No, you're right. Eight. I think eight's probably fairer. Okay. Yeah. That's 16 for antiperistasis. Martyrdom. Martyrdom. How far were they willing to go? We didn't cover it much in this episode. But I did mention that she herself went to battle Mm. and took her children with her. She very much put herself in danger of death where no other queen in the world would. I mean, we've got the history of Eleanor of Aquitaine that we haven't discussed, but she went to the Holy Land. But she was never near the battle lines. She was always kept well away and secure. Isabella was living in tents. Mm. Is that martyrdom? She was willing to die, and that was going to battle to push the Muslims out Mm. of Spain. So specifically, it was a religious war. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing I suppose that we've thought about that martyrdom would be religious, although mostly it hasn't Mm -hmm. been so far. No, this is the first one, I think, that Mm. is. In fact, we've had a surprising lack of religion, especially given that we've done a pope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that just tells you what Pope Alexander was like. Not religious. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I'll go for a seven. For a seven. I'm actually going for a nine wow. because she put her well yeah. for a woman, she put herself so far out there, and I'm only taking one away because she didn't die. Mm. Okay. I honestly think that if she could have found a way that the people would allow her to pick up a sword and go into battle herself, she would have. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's another sixteen for martyrdom. B team. B team. This is our posterity round. What did they leave behind that still resonates today? This one's a little harder to figure out. Her B-team really, which is posterity, really goes through Catherine, 
rather than herself, because she specifically sent Catherine to England. She decided Catherine was going to England. Or the team has nothing to do with England. It has to do with America. Yes, but we didn't cover that here. So I was no. That's what I mean. I mean, we might have heard of Ferdinand and Isabella, but you've heard yeah. heard of them because of Columbus, America. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we. I was specifically only looking at yeah. England when I was writing. Well, that's my what I'm notes. thinking. Of, we're strictly on England with this one, whereas the big chunk of of their fame is not yeah. is not relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of people around the world know her. Yeah. They actually do. Um, but specifically for England, I I sometimes wonder how horrified she would have been if she had realized that it was her daughter's marriage to Henry that ended up starting the Protestant Revolution oh, in gosh. England for <laughs> such a religious woman. Oh, my Atlanta. Oh. Yeah. So really, her effect on England was massive. But she also encouraged, pushed, arranged the marriage between Scotland and England to stop those countries from fighting. Hmm? She brought peace to England in a time that England was still battling with Scotland and Ireland. Yeah, and um, I think initially we thought of Batim as how famous are they? How much people heard yes, of them did. now? Whereas it, we yeah. seem to have changed, changed it a bit to how much... What Probably if... because a lot of the people that we're covering, nobody's heard yeah. of. So we had to modify it a bit. <laughs> it's, yeah, now it's what, what, of the, what's, how did it, what they did carry on through history. And the fact that she is the mother of Catherine is huge. Mm -hmm. Especially since we're doing a podcast about the Tudors. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um... Yeah, I think another seven. Okay. I am... I was thinking a six. Mm. Because while people of England know of Catherine, they may not remember Isabella because it's Catherine of Aragon, not Catherine of Castile. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, she so gets... I went with a six. Okay. So that's 13 for Batim. Flaunt a bleeding flaunt. Flaunt a flaunt. This is our portraiture round. This is cool. I'm going to share my screen with you, and we're going to discuss a few different pictures. Mm -hmm. So this is the first contemporary image of Isabella. She's fairly young. It's very striking. Mm-hmm. The painting is very striking. She's, um... She looks as if she's sucking on a wasp, though, isn't she? I mean, she's not... <laughs> not very happy. No. Hmm. Interesting yeah. painting, though. Do you want to describe her? She's... She's, uh... She's got very severe centre parting. <laughs> Red hair. She's... Not quite... I've come to say she's got a squint. She's got a sort of narrowed eyes. I've got you in my sights. You can't get away with anything sort yes. of look. Yes. Slightly pursed lips. She's wearing quite a lot of um, big chunky jewellery yes. stuff. And pale. Quite She's very, very pale. Yeah, I suppose that comes with being red-haired, doesn't yep. it? Yeah. Hmm. Then, and this is the important one, 
Isabella Which is one? the bottom right on her knees reading right. the Bible. She's crimped, she's crimped her hair. <laughs> this is a picture of presumably the Virgin Mary and Jesus. It is. <laughs> um, we've got some sort of cleric thing in the background reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. We've got somebody looking lovingly at the child. I don't know who that, that is. That is her eldest daughter, Isabella. All right. Isabel. What I found interesting in this is this is how Isabella herself wanted to be portrayed. And she's mm. portrayed like this in several. She is she and her children are depicted with the Virgin Mary and Jesus all over Spain. You can still find these and uh what are they called? Bass reliefs where they carve into the side of mm. a building. Sculptures of her and her children with the Virgin Mary to just to show how religious she was and how they assumed that they were part of the holy family she was trying to. This is extraordinary that people thought that was acceptable. I mean, yes, (laughs) that you could just join the holy family. Well, it's interesting. And I'm going to put in a plug here for the Spanish Arpada. Mm -hmm. If you listen to them, they talk about how a lot of the Spanish monarchs take their history back to Adam and Eve. <laughs> mm. They link yeah. themselves right back through history of the Bible in how they're related to religious families in the Bible. So this might have been an accepted... Yeah. Well, Henry Seventh was um, related to Brutus, the king of the Britons, the, <laughs> and um, Aeneas <laughs> of the Trojan Wars. <laughs> and King Arthur. And King Arthur. Yeah. Cadwallodon. I just find it interesting that this this is one of the first times that we really see symbolism being used as propaganda, mm. which is one of the things we were looking for in Flaunt of Flaunt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I notice it's interesting to me that the Virgin Mary is wearing black, a very plain yeah. gown. Usually she wears pale blue, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah, but Isabella is very well decked out. <laughs> She's better yes, dressed. No, she hasn't. She <laughs> So is her daughter. Her daughter, (laughs) Isabel, to the left of the Virgin Mary, standing behind her slightly and looking down at Jesus, is also better dressed than Mary. (laughs) Yeah, but what would would you dress Mary up in? I mean, you couldn't dress her up in... Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It is. She's got quite a lot of flouncy red material around her, though. Yes, she Um, does. I once thought red was the Virgin Virgin Mary colour, but I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder where the Virgin Mary started going to put in blue clothing. And this is Isabella and Ferdinand's wedding portrait. Now, the problem with looking at this one is it has not been cleaned. So it is very, very dark. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it doesn't look like the sort of thing you choose as a wedding portrait. No, apparently we're missing details in the background and her hair looks dark brown, but it, but apparently her hair is supposed to be red gold. So you can imagine how, Mm. how changed it is. Yeah, how grimy that thing is. But I found it interesting how plump she is. Well, I suppose she's, I don't know, a wedding photo. I obviously wouldn't say she had a lot of children, but not in her wedding (laughs) photograph she didn't. No, no. (laughs) Wedding photograph, wedding painting. But you can see the resemblance between her and her husband in their lips. The small upper lip and the big um, yeah, pouty his bottom lip. Estimate his face doesn't look... No, he's not. Resolute, handsome. does it? 
It looks a bit... It looks vapid. (laughs) All the men in these paintings look vapid. Yes. She looks determined. It must have been a look... Yeah, we're seeing something different in these paintings to what people saw in those days, I think, because... We must be. Yeah. But I find it interesting that in her photo, or her photo, (laughs) in the first painting of when she was younger, before she got married, she looks so determined and honestly a little on the nasty side. Yeah. Whereas her husband, who should look like that, instead (laughs) looks stupid. They're not looking at each other. They're both staring off into space at angles. Yeah. And as she's looking sideways at him, thinking, what the hell have I got myself latched <laughs> onto? <laughs> but I think, yeah, I mean, I think a nine for the, for, for the paintings because it is propaganda. So yep. that's what we're looking for. What would get a 10? Uh, what's his face got a 10, didn't he? Um, Pope, yeah. I think when we when we get to the... Elizabethan ones, and it's sort of dripping with alchemic symbols and right. that would uh, that would do it for me. I think I'm actually going to give her a ten because it is using the Virgin Mary as yeah. propaganda. Yeah, which is quite cheeky, really, isn't it? It very much is. <laughs> I am on par with the Virgin Mary. <laughs> well, in fact, I'm better dressed. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> But a part of that, I think, is Isabella also pushing her reform of the Spanish church because she did want them to be ascetic. She did want them to follow a simpler life. So to present Mary as being somebody dripping in jewels would have been against what she was trying to encourage. Yes, but you'd have thought it would go the other way, that she would dress down. Ooh, we're going to discuss that in the Patreon episode. Oh, in the Patreon episode. Yes, in the Patreon (laughs) episode. Sorry, we probably will not do this in the future like this, but (laughs) there is so much I wanted to speak about her that it had to wait. Yeah, there's not going to be any or many that we're going to be doing in the main episode and Patreon anyway. We've got got such a stock of people for the Patreon episodes that... uh, We won't have time anyway. No. (laughs) No, but I mean, I'm getting another two episodes with her just to get in her life. It is so Mm. packed. But yeah, the final question. Well, hang on. What we got here then? That's eight. Oh, sorry. That's 19. Oh, here. You know what? I can go to the totals and tell you. 66.5. Yep. Not bad. Not bad at all. She is too currently shabby. third. Yeah. Margaret Beaufort is still top, followed by Sir Edward Poynings, then Isabella, then Perkin Warbeck, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, that's odd, isn't it? It's an odd collection of people. It is really odd. <laughs> <laughs> Are they too delicious, or what? Well, what do you think? Well, I think it's a definite yes, isn't it? It's a yes for me too, yay! (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, when you look at Perkin, doing nothing off his own bat, from what we could tell, I mean, we might be maligning him. No. (laughs) And we're looking looking at Isabella, and she's taking the initiative 
for everybody, even when it's none of her damn business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's the ultimate busybody in European politics. So, yeah, no, I think so. I don't know if perhaps you don't agree. Oh, I am so happy that you said yes, because I have fallen in love with her. She still does have traits that I'm not too happy with, which we will discuss another time. But yes, yes. Uh, Congratulations, Isabella. You are roundly said to say yes. You are too delicious. Good. Well done. And now... I get to see who my oh, next do, person yes. is. I do, I do. <laughs> no, put the box. Mm. The box. <laughs> You're not going to like this. Oh, no. You're not going to like this at oh, all. No. <laughs> Polydorative Virgil. Oh my god, no! <laughs> oh, really? But this is quite good for me because I did, I've written an episode on Bernard Andre or Bernard Andre. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could compare some of the approaches of the different historians. So I've done my oh. bit. <laughs> and I've got a feeling. <laughs> Yeah, you might find I'm not. you might find all sorts of things. I'm not happy. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> if anything, this 100 percent proves that we are pulling it out yeah, of the box. I mean, you watch, there you is watch, no way I would have done that. You watch me shake the box, so I didn't. <laughs> I didn't balance him on the top, so that I. <laughs> Sorry. Well, great. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just hit my head on the microphone. That's what everybody's <laughs> clunk is going to hear. <laughs> anyway. Oh, and on that downer. <laughs> you might find he's a lot more interesting than you thought. Uh, I just... He's petulant and snide and... Ugh. Mm. Okay. That's okay. Okay. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on John de la Pole. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on <laughs> In the meantime, el lunático, el amante y el poeta son todos compactos de la Im- imaginación. Palabras, palabras, meras palabras, sin importar si son del corazón. Goodbye. Goodbye.
is keep them safe and love them dearly. Keep them away from those nasty men who would have that throne from you. One thing I would ask you, please, dear, make sure you. Do you want to say it in English too? No. No? Because then we can use then we can use it again on another one. <laughs>